Yeah, I mean, this goes from taking the wrong person's word and trying to, like, fit a narrative with, like, bad facts to creating new facts. Yeah. Level of, like, miscarriage of justice here. It's just completely... At this point, we have crossed the... Crossed Cross the, the thin blue line! line. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the anarchy space now, baby! <laughs> Everything is going crazy! <laughs> I, I feel like that should be your uh, your pre-roll. That's the code <laughs> open right there. <laughs> Sometimes you just know. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by... Uh, one of the hosts of another past podcast, Men of Steel, frequent podcast flyer, uh, Case Aiken. Case, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. I, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> We're all having great days. <laughs> Everyone is having a fine time. <laughs> yes. Off mic, we were just venting. And by we, I mean me. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, nothing says pick me up like what we're talking about today. So I got to ask you the question I ask at the top of every episode. Uh, why did we watch The Thin Blue Line? So, <laughs> um, the, the the biggest reason we watched The Thin Blue Line, outside of the fact that we were looking for material that specifically wasn't struck mm-hmm. material, because Solidarity, even though Ooh. as of the time we're recording this, like yes. the WGA has apparently come to some kind of resolution, yeah, although maybe it's not fully... Yeah, I think they agreement, but the members still have to vote on it as of right, recording yeah, this there, podcast. There's... Looks hopeful. Yeah, like we're... There is a horizon at this point, which uh, mm-hmm. we weren't necessarily sure about for a while. Um, but but SAG is still not going. And so we wanted to have yes. material that was, was good in that space. And I, like, I was a film minor in college. I loved doing documentary classes. It's been a while since I've seen The Thin Blue Line. And I was like, oh, that'll be, a, like, a good movie to talk about. And it's been 20 years since I've seen it. Oh, no, no not quite. <laughs> not, I'm not quite there yet. Oh, wait, like, 17 years since I've seen it. So... Because <laughs> I'm getting old, um, so I was I, I was excited to take a look back specifically at this movie because mm-hmm. it was a movie that was very eye opening for me um, when I when I first saw it, and I was curious how that would sort of resonate with me now. And I was excited to rewatch it because the because the phrase "the thin blue line" has come to have a lot of cultural significance <laughs> yes. that is very much in contrast to what the point of this movie is, mm-hmm. and I kind of was happy to have a chance just to be to remind people that the thin blue line is kind of bullshit (laughs) (laughs) and i just need to say that again and again and again yeah it feels like a good time to get this out of the way at top of the show um a cab baby (laughs) let's just let's just blanket statement say that now if you disagree with this um maybe not the podcast for you well Uh, beyond just like the the disagree about like the full context of a cab because like i i understand that if you have if you are a police officer, if you uh, have police officers in your family, and and even honestly, like th- like there are certainly plenty of good cops out there, and like so a lot of the a lot of the focus on it and a lot of the history of policing that has really been brought to light in the last couple of years are while all very true, like that doesn't change the fact that there are certainly reasons for police, and and, and the broader concept of police has also come to in- incorporate lots of different things like mm-hmm. a, a homicide detective is very different from a beat cop and those are like there's a lot of stuff going on with all those things and and there's a lot of um media that is very much like pro cop and, and all this but more than anything else the actual statement the thin blue line 
is racist as fuck. Uh, and that is because it is a reference to colonial troops in India suppressing Indians. Uh, mm. The thin red line, because the British government had to like suppress them, otherwise anarchy would, would, would reign. And the fact that it was appropriated and turned into the thin blue line, which... This movie kind of popularized, which is sort of like the really frustrating part. Like yeah. it, it, it had a, it, it existed in some limited phrases. It, specifically, there was a, a um, uh, in this trial, someone like used it as part of their closing arguments. Um, and but that was sort of like where it sort of showed up in the first place. Um, and the fact that it has been appropriated as this like here's this terrible thing. Uh, or this like bad concept and then has become merchandise that I see all over the place. And it, mm-hmm. it's like kind of unsettling and weird. And it, it's created this like additional politicization of everything that makes it even harder to have real conversations about like, well, what are the jobs that should be done? Where are mm-hmm. the, all these things supposed to be going? And like all, all this stuff. And, and then it gets even weirder when you consider the fact that almost no police department in America is where's blue like like the expression the boys in blue is outdated and doesn't exist anymore but they can't say the thin black line and they can't say black lives matter because those mean different things Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it it, like all these things are come down to perception and so forth and ultimately that's also what this movie is about so it's like all right yeah it's fun to watch and 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 rewatch and uh and see what we take away from it all and like Mm -hmm. what what we took away then versus now and and how angry we got then versus now and man i i was texting you the whole time we were watching this movie <laughs> i was like i'm so yeah. mad <laughs> something this documentary does incredibly well is uh make you very angry and upset uh yeah. even it does a good job of focusing that anger and i think contextualizing it uh but yeah man is it infuriating to watch this which we'll get into i just yeah. had a couple notes at the top of the episode because this is a little different than our usual uh movie struck we've never covered a documentary before obviously this is based in real events, uh, interviewing real people. Um, We're just going to be covering the contents of this film. This is not a true crime podcast, although this is an actual case and actual events. Uh, If it's not included in the film or not an immediate resolution that was reached, um, I'm not interested in solving the mystery. We're here to talk about this movie. There Although I think it would podcasts. be worthwhile to at least like say a few of the like what happened yes. to some people after this movie. <laughs> yeah, if there's um, confirmed, you know, yeah, there, there's some things we can follow up on and reveal, but uh, we're not going to be speculating on the nature of any unknown, unresolved variables. Um, we'll leave that to the true crime podcasters. We're here to talk about movies. Yeah, but this is yeah. I, I I personally have a lot of exposure to Owl Morris's documentaries. Um, I went to film school in Boston, and he is something of a local hero there uh, as much as Errol Morris could be considered a local hero anywhere <laughs> um, and so I've watched this a lot, a lot in college and then um, a couple times since not a day goes by that I don't think about the gobblers from Vernon Florida which if you haven't seen is another great documentary by Errol Morris um, but famed documentarian this film is really notable for being it, it's a really unique documentary in the way that it's it's formatted and structured um, it's almost certainly when it came out Yes. Uh, since then, a lot of things have drawn inspiration from it, of course. Um, but it really did set sort of a precedent. Um, the, uh, you'll notice a lot throughout that, though, the whole thing is very interview driven. There's not a lot of indication of who's being interviewed. There's not like, you know, lower third title cards or anything. It really just let the story come straight from the mouths of those who are saying it without worrying about specifics. And in a way, it makes it a very fluid experience. Um, it also relies really heavily on uh dramatized recreations of events that we'll see play out 
in a couple different ways, as well as you know more traditional documentarian tools like newspaper articles, uh, media in that regard. So um, just some things to expect to see as we get into this. It's very text heavy, so we'll we'll see what we can we can do here. But uh, we jump into the thin blue line with some nice big blue titles. Uh, very. <laughs> immediately taking us in. I didn't know that Philip Glass did the score for this movie, so that was a fun uh, realization. I mean, fantastic score. Again, very cinematic and dramatic for a film recounting true events. Um, also nice to just see Philip Glass turn up every once in a while. Yeah. Um, I... I, I do think it's actually important to note that, like, this movie was snubbed in the Oscars because mm-hmm. it was not considered a documentary. Uh, it was considered yeah. a nonfiction piece uh, because of the use of reenactments. Even though there's none that are really, like, deliberate, it's it's this weird line of, like, here's, a, like, an, like, it's almost like an early essay in terms of, like, yeah. what, what we're trying to present as opposed to here's the footage. And um, because it's such a political piece, it's very... Um, like there is an incentive to discredit the movie as not being authentic by virtue of the fact that it is uh, trying to have a point of view. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. To get that point of view started, we open on these slow contemplative shots of the city of Dallas, Texas, uh, as we hear the beginning narration of what will start our our interviews from Randall Adams uh, narrating uh, his experiences from his prison cell as he's being interviewed by Errol Morris. Um, he tells about how he and his brother left Ohio, driving to California. Got He got a job in Dallas over breakfast, and he's like, it's as if all these things lining up meant that I, I, I should be here. I was meant to be here. Um, and we go to these uh, police lights in close-up that will sort of be like almost mile markers in this movie. Every once in a while, rather than a fade to black, we'll sort of fade to these police police lights or cut to these police lights before we enter a new section of the documentary. We meet another man in his own prison cell, uh, David Ray Harris, talking about how he'd run away from home a couple times and how all of the events that we're about to, to discuss kind of started with David running away from home. Uh, he talks about the pistols and shotgun that he took from his dad, the car he stole from a neighbor after breaking and entering, and how he too made his way to Dallas. Uh, more shots of the city. Randall continues to narrate that uh, he went to work. It was a weekend, so no one shows. And on his way home, he runs out of gas. So while he's going to refill his gas can, uh, he's walking down the street and someone pulls over to see if he needs any help. And this is where David picks the story back up, saying that as a freshly 16-year-old driving down the street, he pulled over and uh, took a guy to get some gas, and that man was Randall. And we find how these two men meet and their stories begin to connect. David uh, explains that he took Randall to the room where he and his brother were staying. uh, We see some uh, insert uh, footage of a comfort motel sign. A lot of times when the, the various uh, interviewees are telling their parts of the story rather than having a recreation, we might just get a static shot of placement in a location. So rather than hearing him say, we went to the comfort motel, we see the sign for comfort motel outside of Dallas uh, in close up, which I think is a great choice because it does kind of keep the visuals somewhat interesting in a very spoken word forward movie. That evening, the two men uh, went out and got some beers and saw a movie. We see in a recreation a cop car uh, behind a car pulled over on the side of the road on the shoulder. 
the lights on on top as one of the cops gets out of the car and approaches the vehicle and the driver. Flashlights on, and then as they uh, approach the car, suddenly gunfire. We see, uh, and I absolutely love the way that this was depicted. Um, with each shot that we like, flash in the medical examiner's chart of where the bullets uh, impacted the body, where they were found, uh, and after seeing a couple shots go off in this format, the driver slams on the gas and drives away as the murdered cop uh, lays in the street and his partner fires on the retreating vehicle, though it makes its escape. These medical charts give way to a photograph of the officer in question, uh, who was just gunned down, and a newspaper article naming him Robert Wood. This article is dated November 29th, 1976, and explains that there is no description of uh, the shooter. Then, in December 22nd, 1976's issue, the paper shows the arrest of Randall, uh, and Randall begins to describe his arrest and interrogation. He says that he was handed a confession to sign by Detective Gus Rose, saying that he wouldn't sign, uh, refusing to sign over and over again, um, even though the officers kept insisting that he had to. Uh, Randall's like, I'm innocent, I don't need to do this, and continued to refuse. Refuse under gunpoint is a point he makes very early on Yes. Uh, at one point. And then we cut to the officer who, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, we get uh, Randall's version of the interrogation. You know, officer pulled a gun on me, and despite being at gunpoint and being terrified, I still refused to sign. And um, this is when we, of course, as you said, go to uh, <laughs> Gus Rose, who... Um, describes the interrogation as a quote-unquote casual friendly conversation, which immediately after hearing the gun being pulled, the harshness of the interrogation, already we're seeing how these like contrasting interviews are going to sow some seeds of doubt between the two as to what the actual events were. He says that uh, when he sized Randall up, he decided immediately that he didn't have much conscience. Uh, no one who meets Randall from the police or investigative side of things or later on the prosecutor's side of things ever seems to have anything good to, to say about him. It very much is a, oh, I met him and he had no conscience or I met him and, you know, I could tell that he was unfriendly. Um, I mean, they keep saying that he has no remorse, which yeah. is so wild because they every time they say that there's never even the allowance that he has no remorse for a thing that he did not do. Yeah. Later on, um, they'll have a moment where uh, a psychologist comes in and talks to him. And this is a process for in, in the state of Texas at this point, the uh, death penalty could only be administered if a psychologist testified that you were going to go on to do more harmful acts. And one of the ways that they tested for that however accurately or inaccurately um originally in this documentary errol morris Morris set out to interview a psychiatrist who was nicknamed dr death because of the amount of these types of trials these capital murder trials that he had testified in and pretty much every time he had testified the defendant had been found guilty and sent to death row because they needed his testimony to say that this man had no remorse and would go on to do more crime if let if released that day And one of the things that the defense lawyers bring up is, like you said, um, no one really considers that if someone didn't do it, that if they're innocent, of course they have no remorse. There's nothing for them to be remorseful for, Um, which is a really interesting kind of point to to bring up because it feels very obvious, right? Right. (laughs) It feels like one of those things that you would think, of course, I didn't do anything. 
I wouldn't feel bad about having not done uh, the crime. I'd feel bad that I was uh, being prosecuted for it, but you know, I'm not going to feel guilt over a murder I didn't commit. <laughs> another one of the detectives describes the interrogation as well. Uh, this is another point where he's kind of building up that like, oh, Randall didn't seem to have any remorse or conscience because he was just describing the color of the wall in the interrogation room and the shooting with the same lack of reaction. Randall kind of picks it up after this, telling them, saying that he told them all about meeting the kid on Saturday and he kept telling them over and over his story, uh, but they just didn't seem to want to believe him and he says he never had an attorney or phone call. Um, so the whole thing felt very one-sided. Well, and then when they finally got a statement that he is able to actually agree to, where they mm -hmm. have a stenographer come in and he recounts his, his version and like, clearly the version that is depicted is like a here's all the facts that match up between what he was saying and what they say but here's all the ones that agree that like agree right. um and they make this very like elongated sequence of pressing x on the keyboard uh because it's a typewriter and so it blocks off all the space so you can't write additional data in there mm -hmm. um and then once he has signed on this it is then released as a confession, even though there's no actual confession involved in it. Like they have several long shots where you can see fully what the text of it is. Mm -hmm. um, but he is kept in isolation. So he isn't even aware of this. So there's no ability to even mount any kind of defense about it if he even had a lawyer, which he doesn't at this point. Right. Yeah. No phone calls, no lawyers. He's just uh, alone with the detectives in the interrogation. At this point, we also get a little bit more information about the crime itself as one of the detectives moves on from describing the interrogation to the actual scene of the crime and the version that they wanted him to confess to. He says that the officer hadn't taken his ticket book out of the car and sort of indicates that like, oh, you know, this, this guy who got shot, like he wasn't even going to write a ticket. He was just going to give the driver a friendly warning to turn on their headlights. They were driving in the dark with all their lights off. You know, the, the officer couldn't have known that the car was stolen, so there's a good chance that this guy could have just been on his way if he hadn't had shot this officer. And there's a little bit in here, and sometimes we'll get these little kind of like almost, they're not asides because they're really part of the main interviews and the way that it's all cut together, but just little like personal vignettes, I feel like is an almost an okay way to describe it, where one of the detectives talks about how Wood, the officer who was uh, shot's wife, had planned to give him a bulletproof vest for Christmas. And it's a very... There's a lot of the, I, I think these personal vignettes are very humanizing in a way, uh, both to the end of making Randall sympathetic to a viewer who you, you open, we see him in a prison uniform, right? Yeah, same with David, uh, but also to kind of ground all of the other people who are talking and giving their own little vignettes as not just characters, but like real people who are recounting their stories and experiencing their, the events and how it impacts their own lives. Um, and this is kind of one of the first ones that I really noted down, but there's a couple throughout of just these little personal asides uh, that aren't directly related to the case, but do sort of build up the the world in which it exists, which is our real world because it is a documentary. <laughs> really trying to balance my language here uh, as someone who's used to doing a lot of fiction movies. <laughs> In the reality of the piece, which is kind yeah. of sort of the reality of the reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reality of the real world that we live in. Uh, the 70s, I guess. they seem That seems like a fictional time, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, is this where they also start talking about the um, the partner? The, yes. Like the off- yeah. Uh, they get into Wood's partner, who was one of the first female police officers that had been assigned to patrol, and they sort of go into this a little bit. They describe the the actions that they take in. They kind of build up this image of these two officers as like just sort of on the clock, average, uh, work in the graveyard shift. You know, stopped for at a fast food shop to get uh, malt, which will be in so many of the recreation video <laughs> images. This malt, it's going to be incredibly important to the visuals of this movie. And it, it sort of starts to get into, you know, first female officers on the force. Uh, a lot is said about how she handled this uh, event as well. And particularly that she didn't really follow procedure. Uh, it seems like from their understanding and her recounting of it, that she was sitting in the car as opposed to getting out of the car and approaching the vehicle with her partner, which would be the procedure at the time, as well as after he was shot. Um, She went to his aid and shot at the retreating vehicle instead of grabbing the radio and immediately calling for an ambulance. Yeah, it's also interesting to note, like, the the officers talking about her, and I I don't believe we ever actually have an interview with the partner. No. Um, the, the officers have this, like, paternalistic kind of component to it. They're like, you can totally understand. Her partner was just gunned down. She mm-hmm. rushed to his aid. You know, like, they're, they're really trying to sell that these, like, violations of, like, the the procedures that are in play in terms of building a, any kind of case related to it all, like, how it's understandable. Which is interesting because they're already setting up that, like, the the amount of information that she has that they, the officers discussing the incident, are aware of mm-hmm. is different than later what we'll hear. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the key details they say is like, oh, you know, she went through this very distressing thing. And also, like, understandably, but importantly, she couldn't remember the full license plate number of the vehicle that she had shot at as it went away. And like, very early on, we're seeing that there are key details that are missing that are going to sort of be filled in or assumed later on, um, even without, you know, any clear evidence to back it up. Uh, we see a newspaper headline that shows that they're looking for a Texas plate with, and they know that it must complain, contain the letters HC, but they don't have the full plate. As mentioned, you know, she didn't catch the numbers. Um, and the de- detectives continue to explain that they really had no information. The only thing they knew is that they were looking for a blue Vega registered in the state of Texas. So blue uh, Chevy Vega? I, I do not know the species of cars <laughs> very well. I don't. I am also not particularly good at the, <laughs> at the car things, especially not models that I don't think exist anymore. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not. A thing. <laughs> but also, not the important part. No, the important part is that they are looking for a blue Vega, regardless of who makes the Vega. Yeah, they're looking for a blue Vega. They check like every Vega in the they state think of they're Texas. Looking for a blue Vega. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're like, yeah, we were getting calls from people who were just frustrated with us constantly pulling them over with the Vega, and they're like, I just want you to check my car and then rule it out. Like, I, I don't want this to be having going on anymore. You know, we see in the recreation again, and we'll kind of go back to this recreation scene, but with details being slightly different or shots being combined in different ways each time uh, of the two officers, one approaching the car. And this time the partner is sitting inside, sipping on a malt. uh, And when there are gunshots, the malt goes flying. And this is not a funny documentary, but every time I see the like several different angles not quite match cut shot of the like milkshake the malt flying through the air before it hits the ground i lose (laughs) it's it's not funny inherently but it's a humorous choice 
yeah, it's such a dramatic take on what is just um, yeah. a milkshake flying in the air. <laughs> but it is relevant because, yeah. like, one of the big things is, like, where does the milkshake land? Mm-hmm. Because if, later on we'll see uh, one of the pieces of um, textual information they have is this chart of the crime scene drawn for the police records. And it notes, like, here's the pool of blood, here's the gunshot. And it does not note a malt on the ground anywhere. The movie shows the same scene a lot. And it is, which is great for us recounting it because this is going to be the same situation where it's like, oh, I thought they showed it this way this this time and then yeah. this way this time. It like the whole point is that perception is weird, right? <laughs> uh, and so it, we're going to be like, oh, is this the, is this the time where they actually show someone in the car? Because the first mm-hmm. time, a couple times, it's completely in dark. You can't even see the silhouette of the person. Right. And then different details show up, and so uh, we. Our, our brains might break a little bit trying to explain what <laughs> this we're seeing this time. This was a fun one to try and summarize for this podcast. Right, because ultimately the summary of the actual events that happened is a car gets pulled over, police yep. get out, and someone gets shot, and it drives away quickly. That's the incident. That's the incident. <laughs> and then the movie shows it to us like yes. 50 times over the course of two hours. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is an incredibly effective tool, because like you mentioned, the whole kind of documentary hinges on these confused perspectives and like what details to focus on at what point, what contradicts what, who is giving their point of view and how is that actually reflecting on real events. Um, but man, man, do we see this milkshake go fly in so many times. And it's so dramatic. <laughs> it's completely dark everywhere. You know, I assume they shot this in like a studio or in dark road at night and it's just black. Paid day on set for that shake. <laughs> It's getting. <laughs> this is where we see the diagram of the scene as the detectives begin to get into the various discrepancies uh, in her story. Uh, a big part of what this indicated to me is it seems like even the other detectives on the force seemed a little doubtful of whether she was trying to maybe cover that she was not perfectly following procedure or uh, to fill in the gaps for her on information that she didn't actually recount to them. Uh, specifically, she didn't have a lot of information about where she was when the shots were fired, the time that it took her to get into or uh, to the other vehicle, and sort of to combat all of the discrepancies in her testimony and her recounting of events early on, they did something that one of the detectives describes as very expensive and very interesting. Uh, and we see a pocket watch dangling in front of us. They uh, hypnotized her to question her and see if they can get more information. I forgot about this part. Yeah. I, I watched this movie in college. I, 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 I think at the time, because this was like 2004, 2005, it was like not quite like <laughs> we, we all knew it was bunk, but we didn't necessarily know like just how bad and how like we, we all understood. But the implications or at least me, because this is one of like my great awakenings to being like yeah. law enforcement can be wrong. I <laughs> <Like, laughs> uh, was like, oh, OK, well, that, that, that's pretty suspect. When the, when the stopwatch drops, they're like, because they say, like, we tried something more unconventional or, or yeah. whatever the phrasing was, but it's like, they don't, <laughs> like, they don't <laughs> really, like, set you up for it. And then stop, like, watch drops. And you're like, oh. you're shitting me. Like, I lost, <laughs> like, I lost it at that moment. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's kind of like, with the malt going flying and with the stopwatch, there is a sort of, like, humor that permeates some of the uh, shots in this movie. It's almost less... 
haha funny and more of like an undercutting of whatever the person is describing in very serious terms is usually how it comes about. Usually it is one of the detectives or the prosecution will say something and then it will be undercut by an insert shot of a pocket watch falling into the scene and we're like, oh my God, you're shitting me or right. uh, the mall goes flying again, um, which is it, it's a effective technique. I think that this film... When it was originally distributed, a lot of the uh, theatrical release, uh, <laughs> I read this very funny soundbite from Errol Morris where he was asked by uh, his producers to be like, hey, when you talk about the movie in interviews, can you like talk about it being more of a thriller and more like entertaining and, you know, it, uh, it really drawing the viewers in and being kind of action oriented? Uh, and he was like, no, fuck off. <laughs> I made right, my documentary. Like, he's trying to like play against like the cop's word and like like right. their ability to like present these things as very serious undertakings. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 cop then like pivots after to like talk about how expensive everything related to it all is, as if it was like such this like, this huge burden and this waste of manpower and all, all the stuff that's going into it. And you know we're also then being provided like yeah, but it's it's patently absurd. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is also the point in the film where we're going to start getting the idea of maybe there are two cars that look very similar and have kind of similar-ish plates. Uh, we see this uh, wider shot of a car that zooms into the plate. It's a blue Vega HCM 406. And then a similar looking but different blue vehicle with a different plate, JNA 890. Gus, one of the detectives, continues to explain that it was getting close to the holidays and that they had not cleared the murder at this point. And so everyone was getting a little tense because... When a cop has been murdered, uh, usually the force dealt with it very quickly. And at this time point, they just really had nothing to go on. They needed any break that they could get. Um, and this is when they get word from Vidor, Texas. Um, we meet a detective from Vidor who describes uh, a resident who had had his home broken into and his blue Mercury Comet had been stolen. Uh, the similar vehicle to the uh vega yeah and the cops are immediately like oh it turns out we weren't looking for a vega we were looking for a comet and like they have all these shots where like the light configuration like they zoom in and like pull out and it's like the it goes to like the whole red of the the tail light to being like Mm -hmm. no it's actually this totally different light configuration and you know they just like just reminding us again and again that the information that we're being told is all subjective and like you know subject to being wrong and 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 misinterpreted exactly uh we also uh in this point the vidor cop is like oh we sort of felt as though david had committed that crime and we see a photo of 16 year old david who we previously met through his narration um he had been missing for a few days and until they found uh the abandoned vehicle and realized that he had fled on foot the cops inviter realized that uh, David was back in town when they started to hear rumors that he was involved in a shooting in Dallas. And they talked to a few of he. They called him his comrades. There's like idiot friends. They all say that you know they thought he was just bragging as he, you know, would keep showing up and knock on their doors late at night, invite himself in, uh, and brag about how he was the one who had killed the cop that the news was uh, talking about in Dallas remarkable restraint not to play i shot the sheriff like during the sequence (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh i really uh, there's a part of me that kind of loves all of these guys we'll get them once or twice and it's always just them showing up and in the interview being like yeah he came around saying that he did a lot of crimes and we all thought that he was just bragging and then it turns out maybe he actually did them 
to hear them say so directly all the things that he had been saying that he was doing and to hear them all be like, yeah, he's kind of our, uh, this guy we know who does a lot of crimes. And it was very strange to all of us in some ways and a little bit disconcerting. Um, but to then immediately hear the police from the same town uh, have a very like friendly relationship with David to be very like positive towards him they you know always talk about how they'd question him and though he may deny things up and down they were like oh well he's just a scared kid of course he's gonna deny things at first but he's he's got like a good heart in there somewhere and then once he knew he was got he'd always be very truthful with you um, which is a very different attitude than we've seen any of the law enforcement have towards Randall who uh, you know we've, we've heard about his interview how that went already and how uh aggressive it was and it's a very different kind of approach from the law enforcement in this this small town his friends say that david had showed them the 22 caliber pistol and said that it was the one he shot the cop with which was enough for his friend to believe that he'd done it and the detective however uh describes david as taking him to a swampy area behind his residence where he had hid the gun and the detective just seemed more concerned about his, like, gun maintenance, worried that it's going to rust over than the actual weapon being found hidden in a swamp. I, I think I get what he's trying to say, which is that, like, you can't, like, there's so much evidence you lose that if it, like, is, like, disgusting and rust- rusted mm-hmm. over, like, in terms of, like, prints and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And they, they set that up because I think we've already... Or, or maybe that again, it's hard. Yeah. Like the chronology gets weird. At <laughs> some point they tried to hand over to Randall a gun for him to hold. So mm-hmm. they could get his prints on him, or at least right. that's what Randall says. <laughs> and he refuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we get a newspaper headline. Vider youth tells police about murder. And the Dallas detectives seem to think that uh, David was worried because he'd been like bragging about things that had happened that he didn't really do. And now he was scared. So that's why he had turned, you know, made a heel turn and was telling them about what had really happened that night. And they just took David at his word when he said that he was there and that he knew who really uh, shot the cop. They all seem to think of him again as like a very friendly kid that they could easily chat with. Uh, who they yeah, they make a point of like trying value. to keep having like friendly conversations with him to get yeah. more out of him, kind of thing. It's like, well, we wanted to like even after we got everything, we just like kept talking to him because he was just like so friendly, and we wanted to like have this friendly relationship with him. <laughs> yeah, this is where you start. I, for me personally, this is the point where I start to get really like the building infuriation that will slowly yeah. climb throughout the film of like. But you were so awful to this man who up till now we have not really seen any evidence that he's done it. Like we haven't been presented with the other side of the argument yet. Why are you being so friendly to this kid who has admitted to other people to being the murderer who is a history of doing crime? And we'll see that how it plays out throughout the rest of the interviews. Gus is back, our old friend, and he explains that he realized that David knew the facts of the case perfectly matching the stuff the cops already knew, uh, which is where we bring David back into the narrative. And he explains that the story he told was that around 12, the officer came up to the car and he just started shooting, that it uh, seemed like time had stopped. They went back to the Comfort Motel and um, asked Randall's brother if David could stay, but his brother didn't like that. So David left and he pulled into a parking lot and slept before heading home in the morning. Uh, Randall's version of these same events is a little different. 
He says that after being picked up and riding around a bit, he realized that David had a practical arsenal with him. He was waving a pistol around and kind of like making fun. Uh, And Randall even went so far as to suggest that he put the gun in the trunk of the car. They stopped for sandwiches and beer. They... Uh, and at this point, uh, David pulled the pistol back out and fired it, which is when Randall put it under the seat to keep him from messing around more, which potentially, it doesn't really come up in the film, but it could be a potential reason why, like, David, uh, Randall's prints might be on David's gun. They go to see a movie around seven or so, and we see a drive-in showing a movie of David's choice as the two men sort of sat, uh, drinking and watching half of the end of one and the beginning of another movie. Uh, Randall spends quite a bit of time talking about how he didn't really care for the second feature, which was sort of like an R-rated cheerleader uh, type thing. And yeah, we... I meant to stop and look up if they actually showed the footage of it. Yeah. Ver- versus if it was like just like <laughs> something they put together to look right. I couldn't like clock it as being anything. I kind of tried to stick around in the credits to see if they would like accredit it to something, but I didn't, I didn't make any notes. Yeah, it, it kind of just made me think about like just how much schlock that we like forget about because we only were like, oh yeah, you know, the teen titty fic of like of nineteen seventy seven, <laughs> like w- you know, which one? And also like, no one's gonna remember this detail yeah. because it's been forever and none of it was like culturally significant mm-hmm. or important in any way. Needless to say, I'm not sure if they were just recreating the type of thing they were watching or actually mm-hmm. showing a real like real footage. Yeah, it's a neat technique though. They do they sort of like a little drive-in movie set again with this whole. You can't really ever see anything beyond the immediate item they want to show you with the whole blacked out background, uh, which is very effective for the kind of making a cohesive style for all of the recreations in this film. They eventually do decide to leave because Randall's not into the movie and head for the motel. Randall describes that he went across the street to a store to buy a pack of cigarettes and a newspaper and notices that David had stuck around. Um, and since Randall had not really had any of his other coworkers show up for work that morning, he's like, oh, you know, if you stick around... You know, you could follow me to work Monday morning and talk to the boss, maybe get a job. Still being pretty friendly to this kid. Uh, and at that point, Randall goes home to his uh, house. Uh, his brother is there asleep with the TV on. And Randall describes watching the end of the 9 p.m. Carol Burnett show and then 15 to 20 minutes of the news before going to sleep. Both of these timelines are backed up by the TV guide that we get to see occasionally in close-up, um, showing the 9 per- 9 p.m. Carol Burnett show, and then the evening news. We jump forward in time. A newspaper headline takes us to December 22nd, 1976. Uh, Randall's being interviewed again, and he recounts how, uh, at this point, they they brought in a stenographer. He gave his account of what happened, and type, type, type. After 30 minutes or so, she came back with a copy of his statement, uh, which was released as a confession, even though it was just a statement of events. I'm sorry I jumped the gun. I... (laughs) It's, on that one. <laughs> the, it, this, if this movie does one thing it's jump the gun uh all over the place so you are all <laughs> yeah, and we're de- we're not trying to make a pun here i'm so sorry <laughs> given the context it's already taking like i'm doing so much concentrating i mentioned this a little bit before we started recording but one of my favorite episodes of documentary now is the episode that spoofs this movie and it's taking so much self-restraint to not call david bill hater every time or <laughs> like oh <laughs> uh, man One of the detectives explains that Randall admits to driving the car and taking a right on Inwood Road off the interstate uh, or Highway 183, but after that, their statement ends and Randall kind of blacks out and doesn't remember anymore. Um, He doesn't remember anything about being uh, stopped or a shooting. It's just sort of a blank spot in his memory. Well, they keep, uh, like, 
harping on that. And it's like, it's so convenient that the 10 minute drive, you don't remember any details about the 10 minute drive. They keep mm-hmm. on like focusing on this detail when, and if you're like listening to it with any sort of like, you know, incredulity, it's mm-hmm. like, mm, like how often are you really focusing on the details there? Like they, right. they're like, you don't remember anything about your drive home. It's like, no, I fucking drove home. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the same route I go every night. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, yeah, you know, you sort of, you keep your eyes on the road and you do your turn signals and your whatnot, but maybe your brain's wandering a little bit. And you're not, you know, thinking about, well, I did X, Y, Z. Um, I guess there was nothing notable to remember, like being pulled over by the cops and being involved in a shooting. Um, so all you, all you remember is driving down that street. You don't remember having it like stopping and then murdering a person along the street. Like that's really <laughs> suspicious. Don't you think? Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- it's it's fascinating that what the cops will throw out there and like without a hint of understanding mm-hmm. of how they sound yeah it does seem very you start to, you really get the impression with this whole film that like they had a version of events and they had a guy they didn't like and they thought we can make this all fit if we just sort of ignore the parts that don't immediately fit or alter facts slightly to say well we got new information and now we're we're changing this because it fits the story that we want to tell better and oh isn't it convenient that he just doesn't remember this 10 minute stretch of driving as opposed to maybe he was just driving for 10 minutes and nothing happened what are you gonna do ask him to (laughs) remember so i my foot was on the gas Uh and i went forward five feet Uh and then i continued to go forward five Uh feet And then I continued to go forward five feet and there was a rabbit to my right and I continued to go forward five feet and another a car passed me going that at that point. And then it was 30 seconds later in another car. It's like, wait, 30 seconds later. What happened in that 30 seconds? We get to another newspaper headline, uh, this time announcing that the female officer is on leave pending an investigation. And the detectives explained that they tried to get her to recall any information. And though a few times she gave a pretty good description of the car, uh, you know, they, she wasn't exactly right. And again, this is where we see a lot of the comparisons between the Vega and the Comet. Both of them are blue. Both have the same I'm a lover bump- bumper sticker, which again, a little moment of like almost brevity in an otherwise very serious thing. Uh, kind of absurdist, like a lot of the uh, comparisons between interviews really draw. Both cars are very similar, but they do have a couple key differences. Uh, this is where the cops were like, oh, we weren't looking for a Vega. We were looking for a Comet. Um all of our info was wrong. All of the stuff we'd done before, that's why we didn't get anywhere because we were looking for the wrong thing. Totally God not. damn it, we wasted so much <laughs> money. Like, they're so, they're mad at, like... <laughs> I can't believe we shelled budget. out for that hypnotist. Right. <laughs> it's like, look how... Look, look how beset the police department of Dallas is for, for having, like, wasted all this manpower trying to hunt down the, the murderer of, of, of one of their own. And... And, and it was a, a misdirection. Gah! Like we're mm-hmm. like we're the ones who are screwed over in this situation. Yeah, it's like not even about the, like the the dead man. No, Randall also like remarks that he's like completely shocked that there was wasn't even a mark on the car that David had stolen. And like, how crazy is it that a woman who was such a good shot couldn't hit a car starting from stopped even once? And he sort of muses to himself that he wishes she had hit the driver because then he wouldn't be in this situation. And so we do see that there is some resentment from Randall about the situation that he's in. Um, understandably so. Yeah, uh, and they start talking about the with the partner. And again, the timeline for some of this is just hard to remember exactly. So oh, sure. f- f- smack me down if I, I, if I start <laughs> jumping the gun. But 
again, sorry, I don't, I'm really, <laughs> idioms that just have weird context in this movie. Uh, they, they start talking about, like, what the procedure should have been, mm-hmm. and, like, this, this is when we start getting the vibe, or maybe it's, like, shortly after, but, like, we start getting the vibe that they're beginning to coach or say, like, oh, she would have done this thing right. following the book, and she's a good officer. Yes. Um, even though we actually already know that they had led with, like, she was so new and like it was so important and she's you know she's one of the first female officers it's um like can't like can you blame a person for these lapses of protocol because yeah we learn a little bit later on that like yeah she's like went through two weeks or so of internal investigation and internal just like affairs and you get the sense that like she was like you said she was coached through all of that to kind of have the version of events that they wanted her to have when they came out of it the detective from David's hometown explains that he searched the car many, many times with its owner and they found no indication of gunfire damage until uh, a little bit later after their searches when he got a call that there was actually one place where the bullet had maybe uh, creased the car, um, but he didn't get a chance to like see it or confirm it because the man's daughter had demolished the car and sent it to a junkyard before they could really investigate it. Uh, we then meet one of the uh, lawyers for the defense, Edith James, l- the lady lawyer. She is frequently recorded, referred to by others on this uh, interrogation, not interrogations, interviews. So many eye-related talking words yeah. <laughs> for this film. Uh, she describes the experience of being approached by Randall to talk about his case uh, when he was in search of an attorney. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm no dummy well maybe i'm a little bit gullible but i'm no dummy who believes like in the innocence of my clients um all of the ones who admitted that their guilt were guilty before randall um and she then describes the prosecution uh and the prosecutor specifically for this case douglas Mulder, and his perfect win record that he was oh oh so proud of how he always got the guilty sentence Um, And because she knew what she was up against, she brought in uh, another lawyer, Dennis, on the case to have extra hands on board, especially since he had more trial experience. And he was enthusiastic about the Randall case because going over all of the evidence, he's like, there's, we can win this, you know, the prosecution doesn't really have any legs to stand on. All they've got is uh, David. Right. Who is already a... a juvenile delinquent at this point yeah. like that that's the best we I, I i do have to say uh hit, the, the lawyers are great especially a sorry i forget her name um uh edith james yeah she is awesome uh Love her. like <laughs> the way she breaks down the case and everything is so like they're both they're both mm-hmm. fantastic like you can really see um the the actual like devotion to detail that they have for everything how they're able to point out everything all this and also this is when it gets really fucking ominous because we're like oh no he always gets them and this is when it gets back to like the the actual reason for why this documentary was made in the first place it's not where they're Mm -hmm. talking about Gregson, but where we start setting up this idea of like no the point is that they need to close the book that they need to get the conviction Mm -hmm. that they need this that there's no chance like that it that it's about winning, not about being right. Exactly. It's uh, we're starting to get to the real meat of the movie. We're, we've scratched the surface of here's the case that we're really that we're looking at, but now we're getting to what we're really here to to see. One of the other lawyers for the defense explains uh, a little bit more about the town of Vider, where uh, 
David is from. Uh, he reveals that it is a Ku Klux Klan headquarters and a town that most African-American folks would not even stop for gas in, much less stay after dark. Uh, oh boy, rewatching oh this boy. movie, does this, the, does this chunk hit different? Because when yep. I watched this the first time, I was like, oh, those backwards times. <laughs> and uh, that did not feel that way this time. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it. you know, the racial tensions, it's not like the most prominent theme throughout, and especially, I think, watching it now with the context of a lot of the tensions between the general public and police forces are often very uh, race-focused. You know, a lot of African-American men and women have been the victims of police violence in this country in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, clearly... <laughs> This has permeated and been a lo- issue for much, much longer. Particular to this film in this case, the reason that he brings this up is because many of the people in this town were under the impression that the officer that had been murdered was a black man. Um, and while this, uh, the lawyers were stopped at a motel one night, uh, he realized that he was being watched and being observed because James had gotten up at the night and was looking for him and just some random person in the parking lot had his room number and gave it to her. Uh, and so he's like, this. there was already this air of we are the outsiders, we are the others, and we are under suspicion in this town of Vider while this case is happening. Yeah, um, the, the, the cop who actually was shot, um, I believe he's Hispanic, which I think where yeah. the miscommunication comes in. It's like officer of color and mm-hmm. it's like mm, that colored officer and then yeah. i couldn't tell what the like the the weird creepy town was about where they're like oh good they killed the black guy or were they like oh good they killed the black guy also we're getting vengeance so two t- double win or something I, yeah I, I, it was so so goddamn creepy it was strange it like it's i feel like it's an important detail to include because it does like paint the town of vider and uh in particular many, some of the people we meet from there in a little bit of a different light but also, it did feel a bit distracting at times to go into how the defense lawyers were feeling at this point. Um, this movie is a little... There are a few couple points where, like, in giving us the whole picture, I do think we go off on a little bit of tangents. And this, again, felt like kind of one of those personal anecdotes where it didn't directly uh, contradict evidence given in the case, per se. But it did sort of build up this person and who they are and their values in a way that made their later information they gave in the interviews kind of fit a little more. He also continues to say that the prosecutor, Doug Mulder, had been there for a week before he even arrived and had seemed to be telling the people of Vider that, you know, this lawyer was an Eastern educated civil liberties attorney who was there to discredit David Harris, their own small town boy. Um, And uh, he uh, was recommended to go see the policeman who had led, who had been led to the solution of the case, uh, who told him. Um, that after the cop was killed, uh, David had returned to Vider and committed another crime, robbing a 7-Eleven. So his crime spree continued. David explains that he had robbed the 7-Eleven with a rifle and and then done a few other robberies, all while on juvenile probation, and eventually turned himself in for the stuff in Vider and made some sort of, like, confession or something. Again, he refers to this all very, very casually. We see a bit more of his buddies who all say that they were like joking about dressing him up like a real Bonnie and Clyde type and sending him into the convenience store. But then again, late at night, they get a phone call and David's like, nah, I actually did it. I wasn't joking. Um, His buddies say, and I thought that this was very interesting because there's a lot of conversation about Randall not seeming to have any sort of conscience earlier. But at this point, David's uh, like hometown friends are saying that 
he didn't seem to have any conscience about all the crimes he was doing. It didn't seem to bother him at all that he had done something morally wrong or that he had done anything illegal. We also see a list of some of the stolen items, uh, a toolbox and a Mercury Comet, one of the blue cars mentioned earlier. We love our blue cars, get our comets and our Vegas. I don't know if either of those are still in production anymore. I'm like tempted to Google it, but <laughs> the only reason I want to Google it is so that I can make a joke being like, well, the, the, the blue Vega is no longer in production, but the blue Dalsim is. Yeah. Uh, and that's only because I can't help but make a, a Street Fighter 2 reference. But... <laughs> I was going to say like every other Italian American woman, I am like, do I do my like Marissa Tomei, Tomei, my cousin Vinny moment here? Like, can I really get into the, the specifics of the rear axle? And like, this actually was, I, I was wondering, and like, I, I'm sure that there's other incidents like it, but I was wondering if this movie was influential in terms of, my cousin Vinny as a mm. movie because this kind of feels like my blue heaven versus goodfellas in terms yeah. of like that like th- it feels like the other side of the same coin that like like my cousin Vinny is very much doing this exact story just where they win huh. <laughs> or like you the know, good guys win <laughs> i never thought about that but that is actually it's an incredibly apt comparison like they really do, it, my cousin Vinny is kind of doing the heroic you know, fictional version of this in a lot of ways. And even a lot of like, I don't want to call them characters, but the real people have like very specific kind of personalities that come through that I think you could argue is maybe one or two of the characters in my cousin Vinny, like the lawyer in this, for example, uh, Dennis, I think it is that uh, defends um, Randall kind of does give the same vibe as, oh, what's the guy, Vinny. Uh, <laughs> like, characters names in this movie are escaping me i just think of that great scene with marissa tomei every time um huh now i'm gonna be thinking about maybe now i'm gonna be double featuring the thin listeners out there do a double feature watch the thin blue line and then watch my cousin Vinny, and then write in and tell us if you think one influenced the other I mean, it's the right timetable too, because that came yeah. out in '92. So that's like the four, like the four-year time period of like script and like having it be in the zeitgeist for a year, writing a script based on it, getting <laughs> yeah, like getting. Some, oh man, forget the. I'm putting out this theory. This actually, I, I, I want it, yeah. like if it is not already a thing that we just don't know about, I want to mm-hmm. be the person to coin the theory that my cousin Vinny <laughs> is inspired by the Thin Blue Line. Yeah. Um, What's my evidence? Who fucking nope. cares? We're talking about the Thin Blue Line. The point is, you can make up evidence. <laughs> Exactly. If we say it's true, then I mean, you can't contradict that. It's I have a surprise eyewitness who will confirm it. <laughs> the lawyer explains that he tried to introduce uh, a crime spree theory that David had done a number of crimes before and after the murder and that his heart was filled with malice, but the judge wouldn't allow him to introduce any of those crimes into the court to kind of discredit David. And we see some of the uh, court drawings at this point, which are very striking in and of themselves. Uh, I thought it was a really kind of, un- it, it, I thought they were really interesting to see. You don't get a lot of just like static images on film per se. You know, that's sort of the whole thing with the moving the moving picture as it were. Uh, but, you know, they're just such a, a clear visual of the uh, emotions going on in the trial. Um, I thought it was very smart to integrate them. They talk about how they didn't seem to want to give a 16-year-old the death penalty in the same way that they could 28-year-old Randall. And this is our uh, lady lawyer, James, again. And she's like, I think that, you know, they really wanted to prosecute for the death penalty. And it was much more convenient age-wise to have a 28-year-old on trial as opposed to a 16-year-old. Yeah, that 
I feel like I missed that the first time I watched this movie mm-hmm. uh, because the it, this is where like the bloodlust component really kind of comes in. It's not just like we have to get our man, but like not just it, it's that we have to have not just a conviction, but an execution. Yeah. It's not just the pursuit of justice. It's the it's a show of force. Right. Really. And that's the Grigson point, like the, the Dr. Mm-hmm. Grigson element is that his existence and again we haven't really gotten to where they talk about it in this movie but he's the impetus for for this movie which mm-hmm. is that it's not just that they have to prove a person is guilty in texas to get the death penalty they have to prove he's guilty or he that they are guilty mm-hmm. and that there is no remorse and that it is going to happen again that it is that it is um civilly unconscionable to allow a person to go free because there is no there is no alternative but additional violence right and that this is a a psychiatrist who became known for regardless of the person always being like yep they're they're a sociopath who's gonna murder more people i talked to him for 30 minutes i i'm pretty positive this person's gonna do it and when you combine that with the fact that the district attorney has a perfect win record exactly and that it's all this sort of thing. That's where you start getting one of, and it's not the only thesis, but one of the theses of this uh, of this movie that it, that there is this societal, but this institutional mm-hmm. desire to quench this bloodlust, and and that there is <laughs> that justice isn't the point. <laughs> not at all. There's a great quote from. Uh... A surprise witness introduced later. It's a surprise tool that'll help us later in the movie about the hall of justice rather than um, Lady Justice herself being the one who decides it. But uh, yeah, I think it's also a good point to bring up is that when Errol Morris set out to make this documentary originally, it wasn't that he planned to focus on this case, but rather to interview Grigson and tell a story about him to kind of shed some light on, like you mentioned, his doctor death reputation and the state of capital punishment in texas and it was grigson's suggestion of oh well you should talk to those that i've gotten convicted essentially like those who i've interviewed in the past to kind of build out this story that eventually led him to this randall david case uh, that would become the thin blue line uh but speaking of that thin blue line we're gonna meet our judge uh and he tells us all about his love for law enforcement and their dangerous dangerous jobs um, we get a little bit about his father, the FBI man, and we see some uh, reenactments and film footage of gangster violence in Chicago in the 30s. Uh, he specifically recounts the murder of the gangster Dillinger and how his father was on the scene as a cop at the time and would tell him uh, people were grabbing like souvenirs with their handkerchiefs by dipping uh, them in blood at the scene. And... Um, it would even go on to describe how the famous woman in red from that crime was actually wearing an orange dress and just kind of inadvertently highlighting the way that details from a crime can change from the actual scene of the crime and witnesses to general public perception uh, as things kind of whisper down the lane. Yeah, I uh, I do actually want to focus on that one for a moment because I thought mm-hmm. that's so fascinating and particularly in that this is a rewatch for me, but it's one over many years, which is my big takeaway the first time I watched this movie was about the differences in perception, which mm-hmm. is I, which, again, I think is a thesis of this movie, but it's not the sole thesis of this movie. Right. Um, and that that element, which is so fascinating, where you can see how people who don't remember things piece it together based on context and put it in such a way that it fits the narrative they want to put together or like 
all, all of these things. And so like, here's, here is like this like direct example where they're pointing out that this person, because of the light has this very striking appearance of this, like this woman in a red dress, mm-hmm. like at this famous crime scene kind of situation, but it's all bullshit. It doesn't match the actual truth. It's the perceptions, but the perception is what lingers. Exactly. And we're getting the same thing with the Randall Davis, you know, police shooting case of, well, it's just so much more striking for it to be this like one man in cold blood and to say that he is this callous, you know, bushy haired, wild guy and that he has no remorse. And that's such a a cold image of a killer um, when in reality, as we're seeing, it's kind of this softer spoken meek guy uh in the interviews who was going about a regular day we're then going to get into the david as a witness section of the film where he's giving his testimony and is kind of the linchpin in all of the evidence that the prosecution has for this trial and randall talks a little bit about david's story and he's like clearly frustrated at this point talking about how david's story was always two hours late um you know he's like i met david at 10 a.m uh, he says that we met at noon and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, periodically throughout this, we'll get a little insert of the TV guide again to kind of highlight that uh, Randall's story lines up with the timeline of the TV guide showing the Carol Burnett sto- show and the the news later on. Um, and the yeah, it's a very dramatic details. way to have a visual image of the time discrepancy right there. Yeah. Because they'll say like this thing at midnight and then they'll, like they'll, oh, while they're showing the shot of like the TV guide thing. And they'll, mm-hmm. they'll show clocks a lot with like the, the hands move. And that becomes the at least the box art for for it. I'm not sure if it was like in any official posters beforehand, but like at least when you go to buy it, it shows like the clock and then like the, the eyes. Yeah, exactly. David, meanwhile, uh, says that uh, his version of David recounts his version of events, however, and he describes slumping down in the seat of the car when they were pulled over because he was afraid and how Randall just rolled down the window to shoot without uh, stopping to say anything. He then says that Randall drives them to the motel, uh, tells him to forget this ever happened and that they part ways. The officer was killed at 1230 which Randall says is about two and a half hours after he actually last saw David. So already a a huge discrepancy between the two stories being the actual timeline of events. Uh, Unfortunately, he does also concede, though, that his brother was already asleep when he got back. And so Mm -hmm. there are no witnesses besides, like, you know, like he got some cigarettes, but like no, no one who could really like back him up. Exactly. Uh, James kind of highlights this, too, because she's like, oh, well, we took pictures of Randall to the uh, store where he bought the cigarettes and asked if he remembered him coming in just before 10. Uh, You know, and maybe I took my time a little bit to get over to Fort Worth and all, but I I got the stuff I needed and I got pictures of him not in his jail clothes and I show them to the guy and, um, you know, he he just couldn't remember one night from the next. He's like, these two brothers were always in here buying cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, yeah, no, I remember those fucking guys. Like, they bought cigarettes like every other hour. (laughs) Ten. I have no idea which hour, the, like which time they bought cigarettes that was. <laughs> a very real testimony from this guy. Especially when you consider the fact that like they didn't get picked up for another two, what, two months after that. So like mm-hmm. if they were still around, they probably were fucking buying cigarettes every other night after that too. <laughs> 
Um, it was the 70s. Everyone, we, we hadn't stopped smoking as a nation yet. <laughs> well, also, cigarettes are used kind of as a timekeeping device at a few points. Like, during mm-hmm. the, when, earlier in the movie, and it's not like a huge detail because it's just like, they're like, how long were you there? I don't know. I, I right. finished, what, like a pack of cigarettes or maybe two packs of cigarettes, something like that. It was like, they, they point out the exact number and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that, that that's a lot of time. Uh, you smoked a lot <laughs> during that period, which I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there's a very good, uh, there's a nice little time lapse of like more and more cigarettes being added to an ashtray uh, when they're going through the initial discussion of the interview to kind of do like like you just said to mark the time. The detectives also talk about Randall's brother, who at first had said that he was home watching a wrestling match with Randall, but uh, that couldn't be possible. And he was covering for his brother because, as we said, you know, Randall had already admitted that his brother was asleep when he got home. Um, and the detectives are like, oh, well... The brother changed his story later to avoid perjuring himself because, you know, he just knew his brother was was guilty, so he didn't want to testify um, and also end up in jail for perjury. They don't interview the brother in this uh, film, so we can't get his version of that. But just given how the cops have described the or their perce- perception of the mental states or the thought processes of everyone else so far, you can already sort of get the impression that... Maybe he just didn't have anything to save his brother, per se, more so than it being him believing he was guilty. Yeah, going back to the whole, like, this was just a random night for him. Mm-hmm. And that it's was not that out of the ordinary in terms of, like, there again, it was two months before he gets picked up. So, like, like it's entirely possible that that story was totally true. It's just a different day. Realize that. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, actually, what? fuck, I don't have, I can't say it. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't all know the exact schedule of WWE, okay? <laughs> uh, WWF at the time. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> this is before their Get the F Out campaign. <laughs> that's not fiction by the way that actually was what the, what it was when when uh the world wildlife fund like won the the, oh, the yeah, legal the... dispute <laughs> i'm amazed that it has not been made into you know like a making of mary poppins type movie yet at some point that feels like it's prime for uh dramatization um between the the insert shots of all the wrestlers and then also all of the animals hello speaking of animals ziggy oh you want me out into the microphone sometimes you do that no, okay. <laughs> She'll be around. We're then going to get the female officers, the partner's court statement and testimony. And this is where we really highlight that what she's saying is not matching her original statement given 15 to 20 minutes after the uh, shooting. She describes a suspect in the vehicle. Uh, and in her original testimony, she describes them as having sort of like a fur collar on their jacket. And in court, she describes them as having bushy hair. David had already testified and said that Randall's collar was this like flat denim situation. It was like a Levi's jacket. David had been the one with the fur-lined parka. And Randall recounts that he found it very convenient that her new statement changed to describe his bushy hair rather than David's fur collar, specifically after she had come out of this two weeks of internal affairs uh, with this new testimony. Um, and I think this is about the time when we actually start seeing silhouettes in the car when they do, when mm-hmm. they show reenactments of the of the sequence, yes. which again happens so often, but they keep <laughs> adding details. And this is, they, they I think this is about the time. And again, 
totally correct me because again they show the sequence like 50 times throughout <laughs> the two movies or the two hours it's where they start to get at least a little bit clearer like, yeah they, they start like to they never show a person in it like for mm-hmm. uh, for one thing it's obviously an actor in in the part but they start showing oh, sure. um a silhouette where it where it is the big bushy hair also they start showing his mugshot so you can see what his hair looked like at the time because in mm-hmm. the interviews he's clean shaven and with like fairly short hair because he's in prison and then you see him like yeah big fucking hair with a giant mustache it was the 70s baby very (laughs) 70s james the lawyer uh begins to describe you know re-entering court that day they still at this point thought that he was going to walk because after all the only evidence was uh david who no one really seemed to believe but when they walked in they noticed that there were three new people being sworn in as witnesses and we're going to see the various witnesses now uh, for the next portion of the movie, this sort of like twist uh, as much as there can be one in real life, unexpected and with questionable testimonies. Yeah. Edith opens this up where it's just like the, the, the first one is like po- points the finger at him. And like, you know, mm-hmm. she like, you know, explains the way she said it. And then we get cut to like the first interview. Yeah. Uh, it's Mrs. Miller, the woman who was doing the harsh pointing uh, in a very striking court drawing. <laughs> She says that she saw Randall right after because she saw the gun uh, as they were, her and her husband were driving by. And James is like, oh, her show in court, her pointing at him and saying he's guilty was really what got him convicted more than anything else. And Miss Miller explains that before we really get into her testimony, we get a lot of her personal anecdote aside, uh, where she talks about how she always wanted to be a detective Um, when she was a kid and she used to watch all these detective shows on tv and we see some of the footage from these old detective shows as she describes her desire to be a detective or a detective's wife and that she's always looking so she can see what comes up and how she can help and just trying to keep an eye on everything yeah talk uh, about a murderino yeah right (laughs) she's just a, a real fanatic for being involved in court cases and she always knows what's going on or what's going down um she explains that she was working at a gas station with her husband and they were arguing a bit about something and so they didn't go home on time because they didn't want their kids to see them fighting. Uh, they decided to go get something to eat, which is when the cops came out of a restaurant uh, that they were at and they saw them go to pull a man over. And then we meet her husband who describes uh, Miss Miller looking hard at the guy. They use the word looking a lot to the point where it almost started to lose meaning for me a little bit, but like... She's always looking. She's looking uh, and, uh, you know, he's like, oh, it was dark. I don't know if we really saw the guy, uh, but she was looking at him. So um, he just kept driving. She tried to get him to slow down so she could see better. Her husband's like, oh, you're just being too nosy. And they drove away before the shooting itself. But as they were uh, driving away down the road, he did note that they heard something like it like backfire. Uh, and he thought to himself, like, you know, that must have been the gunshot. She claims that the driver's window was down and that she actually got a good look at the driver inside of the uh, pulled over car despite the time of day and the time of year. Her husband, in contrast, really only could see that the car was blue. Her husband is like, oh, the the guy that she saw was this uh, bearded, mustached, sort of dishwater, blonde haired guy and uh, specifically notes that he looked uh, a lot different in court. Uh, Only the, like, mustache was really the same. Uh, Her husband didn't want to be involved in the scene, and uh, she posits that that's because he is a black man, um, and that, you know, 
she uh, wouldn't want to participate or draw attention to any of the criminal activity. And he reveals that his wife had uh, told on everyone in their lives, including him, for various crimes that they did not necessarily commit, uh, even having told on him to the cops for hauling drugs. Uh, but when they popped his trunk, there was nothing there. And uh, kind of just immediately discrediting his own wife and her own testimony. <laughs> yeah, this is a real weird couple. Like, it, the interracial component, I think, is is fascinating, considering mm-hmm. the setting that this is all taking place in and, like, m- more stuff. Like, it's just, it's really weird. Like, they've got different dynamics. Like, he's very, like, reserved about, like, how much he's willing to, like, throw in and like commit to versus like Mm -hmm. she she's all for it and it it kind of you know spirals out further yeah exactly and the more we learn about them the more of an odd couple they kind of become uh james describes the millers at trial uh and um how mrs miller had just testified that she left work to go pick up her husband despite the fact that the defense had discovered she'd been fired two weeks earlier so already you know she's not there's there's holes in her story and she explains that the millers were only talking to the cops in the first place because they'd had a three-day knife fight in their apartment and after being arrested they're like oh well we have info on this killing can that like help us out a little bit the other lawyer describes a phone call he received shortly after their testimony from a woman who said that miss miller had never told the truth a day in her life and uh you know had evidence to discredit her and though she had tried to phone the da to tell him this he ignored her uh we next go to an interview with this woman who describes the millers as scum and how the husband had come into work the next day telling her about the policeman who had been shot the day before and how he didn't really see anything but once the couple realized that there was a reward for testifying he'd decided that they would say anything uh that they wanted him to for enough cash yeah my defenses were up when she first pops on and then she keeps Mm -hmm. going and you start like start to actually like kind of vibe with her but at first it's just like she's like these people are scum and she's never told like Uh, like it comes off very like uh i don't know like a (laughs) like a busybody kind of kind of thing and like a little bit and again the interracial relationship in a when we've already established that the Ku Klux Klan is a major behind the scenes figure in this entire movie mm-hmm. is like a weird kind of element but she actually ends up coming off like very like sincere about it and like very reasoned in terms of like the the critiques she has about it it's like yeah no this woman's been stealing money from the register like we know about it because like that and that's why she got fired and like you know x you know xyz mm-hmm. and they're like okay cool but at first you're like you know she looks <laughs> <laughs> she, like uh she looks She's like the dana carvey skit i'm like mm, satan yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it definitely is she sort of grows on you through her interview and she does have like you said a very like reasoned approach to why she doesn't believe them you know learning that there was a reward for testifying already uh sheds a lot of light on um not only why this couple might have come forward so late into the game but also how the da and the police were going about this investigation and this trial and gathering their own evidence. Nothing is quite a motivator like a $20,000 cash reward. So you can kind of understand how maybe the witnesses you will be getting for that wouldn't be the most reliable to have only come forward at that point. Oh, and it turns out that that's not the only thing that's quite a motivator for this couple, but (laughs) we'll find out more (laughs) later. 
or maybe now I forget uh, what, again again the timeline yeah. of this movie is so hard to remember because they're like they keep cutting to different people for the same interviews and like ah. <laughs> yeah they sort of dip out from the couple for a bit they'll come back don't worry this yeah. is not the last we've seen of the Millers uh, we do have to address our third witness though Michael Randall who explains that he is a salesman and because of this he sort of developed like a total recall for things that he sees it's sort of like a habit of staring again the idea of looking at things is coming back around um he was leaving the plush pub driving a Cadillac when he noticed an officer with two individuals pulled over, pulled over in a blue vehicle. Uh, and he sort of, I really think that this interview with him in particular is very interesting because he basically says something and then immediately takes it back and considers it before thinking about it the whole time and never really landing on a final statement the whole interview. Uh, because he says like, oh, it was a blue Ford, but maybe actually, I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't a Ford. Whatever it was, it was blue. And the driver had long hair and a mustache. Um, he was a white guy and this is a predominantly black area. So he kind of stood out like a sore thumb. Uh, he st- can't remember if the officer's car was parked in front of or behind yeah, the pulled over vehicle. Yeah, that was a really interesting part where he's like, even just throwing off like that level of positioning which is just like Mm -hmm. wild yeah and at one point he even seems to ask the camera if like it remembers what he saw uh and it it does an incredible job of through his own interview kind of discrediting him as a witness because he can't recall these details that he testified at in trial with any sort of like definitive answer um he's always sort of second guessing his own thoughts or changing it slightly and you kind of get the idea that you know, he didn't see the bullet or the gunfire. Um, he just sort of drove by the scene and it wasn't, you know, like we've talked about earlier, a 10 minute drive or something that you do every night. Oh, someone got pulled over by the side of the road. That's neat. You just sort of keep on going by. You don't necessarily note every detail every time. And he definitely had other stuff on his mind, even in the version that he's telling at the beginning, because he's coming from a strip club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was not the clearest of minds that night, you could say. <laughs> um. The detectives re-enter the interview scene now. They had three people who ID'd Randall as the driver, and they know that the driver is the one who shot the officer. They're like, we know we couldn't have made a case from uh, vol- the voluntary statement that Adams had given us, so we had to rely on witnesses. Uh, kind of giving the game away a little bit of like, well, we couldn't get him to just confess to the whole thing so that we could prosecute him. He told us events that didn't really support him committing the crime, so we needed to find people who would tell us events that did support him committing the crime. The judge then says that he uh, tries not to show emotion on the bench, that you have to remain passive and objective in these cases, Uh, but he admits that Mulder's final arguments, and this is where the title of the movie comes in. I think this is also the moment I texted you, like like the initial part of it, because it was The infuriation. Because he's so damn proud of just how hard, like, just how weepy he gets over this whole thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, the final argument about the thin blue line of police that separates the public from anarchy, like, brought a tear to my eye. I typed the, the my note immediately after that just is, ugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, yep, us cops, we are the thing that saves everyone. Mm-hmm. When really it seems like there's a lot there's a lot of like chaotic elements that have already been introduced into this trial. A lot of people with a lot of chaos in their own lives, uh, regardless of the interference of the police. But with this sort of title drop, this dramatic uh, line, we enter the deliberation of the jury and Randall is found guilty. They narrate that in death penalty cases, 
this is where the question uh, specific to Texas law comes up of you have to prove the person is dangerous and going to commit other crimes in order to impose capital punishment. Uh, so the Dallas DA sends psychiatrists to the defendant to interview him and find out if he shows remorse and is, is therefore not a dangerous and psychopathic personality. But of course, even in this interview, they raise the point of what if someone didn't do the crime? How can they show remorse for something that they did not do? I, I, I just realized, I think we, we we talked about the scene, but I, I, I think we didn't mention it, but it may have, again, sorry, timeline stuff. Um <laughs> There's a point where they're talking about the difference between... I, I think this is when they're talking about the age thing for, like, if you're subject to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But they make a point that uh, that Randall Adams, they describe as a drifter. Uh, which he, you know, earlier sets up. It's like, oh, yeah, well, we were, you know, traveling. We found work in, in this town and we're working. Um, and, like, sort of setting up this whole, like, no, they're, they're, they're perfect as a scapegoat because we just, like, who cares about these people? Um, exactly. I, I think that happened already, and now I I'm, now I can't remember. But like again, another part where they're just like they're just looking for someone. They have this like box that they need to check of in order to be able to dole out this punishment, and they need to give it enough um, to justify its continued existence. And uh, Randall just unfortunately seemed to fit the bill. We are introduced to the idea of the two psychiatrists who are nicknamed the Killer Shrinks, one of whom is Grigson. Uh, Holbrook, the other one, doesn't really come up throughout the film other than being name-dropped here. Um, and they had some criticism because whenever they showed up, the defendant inevitably was sentenced to the death penalty. But we're going to hear directly from Randall about his experience with Grigson, this psychologist who apparently was able to uh, say everyone was a danger to the state of Texas. Um, he remembers because it was tax day, April 15th, uh, the first visit where Grigson had him draw images on a pad of paper, copying them from ones he had written above and then uh, asked him questions about uh, the meaning of common idioms like a rolling stone gathers no moss, which, uh, you know, these various questions and things seem to sort of surprise Randall a little bit. He didn't seem to totally understand their purpose. And uh, at the end of it, Maybe after 15 to 20 minutes, he left, and in trial, uh, Grigson testified that Randall would certainly commit violent crimes if released. Um, but, of course, as James says, uh, Grigson always testifies that. That's how he got the nickname, Dr. Death. Yeah, and, I mean, for him, a yeah. butterfly is always a German shepherd's head split open. Exactly. Uh, she doesn't think that you can predict what anyone was going to do, uh, except for using their prior record, the crimes that they have already committed, uh, which Randall notably has no prior record uh, up the, other than the shooting he's being convicted of. Uh, and Randall describes uh, his perspective of Grigson's testimony about how Grigson talked about how many different degrees he had and built himself up and how the horrible criminals uh, he knew he could compare Randall to and how he testified that the future seriousness of his mental state uh, would be high if he was released and he'd go on a murder spree after talking to him for just 15 minutes. Yeah, he was like, he because they make a point that he like did this whole like line drawing thing and then left mm-hmm. the room and it was just yeah. like, copy those and, and gave no insight into what it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Which that's like, 
as someone with ADHD, my personal nightmare is someone giving me a task and then not really giving any specific instructions and just sort of giving a vague like, oh, copy this. You got you got to give me so much more. <laughs> yeah. Also, your life is on the line. <laughs> yeah. Heighten that by 10 times. <laughs> what do you think of these squiggles? I'll be back in 15 minutes. <laughs> the the craziest part, though, is that Grigson is only with him for a gross amount of 30 minutes and only actually mm-hmm. talking to him for a net amount of 15. Like, because he, like, yeah. goes and smokes and, like, comes back 15 minutes later. And, like, yep, that's enough. Like, this man is definitely not just guilty, but gu- guilty in a, a way that he is going to go on a murder spree afterwards. Because, you know... Like, this guy who's never committed any sort of crime before is definitely the person who's going to go on a spree. Unlike the person who is currently on a crime spree at this point, which is David Harris. I think James makes the very interesting point of like, well, I only really go by prior convictions or prior record. And David is the one who has the active crime spree happening. And all of, I think maybe it's a little later on that she actually says this, but she's like, yeah, convenient that his testimony basically wiped the slate clean for all of his... Uh, currently pending trials or currently pending convictions um, so that they could get this much bigger penalty, this death penalty on um, Randall. Uh, The jury is out and the judge explains that you can understand uh, why a man would steal or why, you know, a, a druggie would need drugs, but he struggles to understand why someone would kill a police officer. And this judge makes me so angry every time he's on screen. The, the noble profession of police officers. How, like, how could you ever do anything to the police officers? Like, they're the, they're the best of us. Why, why would you ever do that? They're the thin blue line. Hi. Yeah. The lawyer gets back into conversation. And he thinks he struggles to think of a motive for why Randall would have done the shooting in the first place he's like randall's got no background for murder and when you compare this to the facts of the case uh when you compare this to the fact that david knew the car was stolen he knew the guns were stolen he was actively on a crime spree he had a criminal record he wanted to commit murder and then went home and bragged about it um you know how could assault right afterwards and immediately He's like, I, you know, I believe David committed the murder when I looked at all this evidence. But when the jury looked at that same evidence, they believed Randall committed the murder. And Randall is, of course, sentenced to the death penalty. And we see uh, one stat, uh, one image panning down of the electric chair. I think that that's you know, the lawyer's interview segment here is a really like clear image of that idea of playing with perspectives, which is something of the theme of the movie of saying so overtly, like my perspective is he done it. And the jury looked at the exact same thing from a different perspective and got a completely different conclusion. Yeah. Again, one of that is a thesis of this, of the, of the Mm -hmm. perspective. That's why the eyes are like the, the central image of like the actual like cover art for this in any sort Mm -hmm. of, uh, in like, like I said, the, the box art on the DVD and, and everything, but, um, and very a, a telling component of it all, but it's only one of of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy that it, when I first watched this movie, like that's the part that really stuck with me. It's like, oh yeah, stories can just like be all. It's it's all Rashomon here, uh, yeah. and then then you're like, oh, but also maybe they're also trying to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speaking of murder people, Randall is describing the DA who only ever seems to talk about how he's going to kill you, not your innocence or guilt. He's only concerned with the death penalty and the effect not the cause 
Randall's like, yeah, when you're on death row, you like hear these descriptions about what happens when you're electrocuted in all the gory details. And no one ever seems to want to talk about anything but how they're going to kill me. And it's incredibly numbing and disheartening. David, meanwhile, uh, in his interview, describes how he didn't have any idea what happened to Randall after his testimony. He just left the trial and headed on out to his own freedom. Um, Almost like he had no remorse. Almost like he had no remorse. Crazy that no one ever thought to ask him about that. James runs through the aftermath of the trial about filing a motion for a new trial and then an amended motion for a new trial and essentially just appealing and appealing and trying to get eyes on this again. Um, this is when the Millers re-enter the story for a little bit. They eventually are okayed for a hearing about uh, potentially doing a, a retrial or a changing from the death penalty to something or other. Legalese has entered the chat and we are going to be talking about another situation in which people are testifying. The Millers uh, testified at the hearing, but the defense was not allowed to bring up that the Millers had said they were getting reward money for their testimony and uh, didn't care if they had seen anything or not. And the defense just kept hitting a wall. A reporter had found a week after the trial that the daughter of the Millers was in court for a robbery herself, and Miss Miller had testified and got her daughter out of jail, and that that case was dismissed a week later. Just giving more reason for the Millers to be willing to say anything at all in their testimony in the Randall case. Uh, yeah, I mean, this goes from taking the wrong person's word and trying to like fit a narrative with like bad facts to creating new facts yeah. level of like miscarriage of justice here. It's just completely at this point we have crossed the, crossed Cross the, the thin blue line. line. <laughs> We're in the anarchy space now, baby. <laughs> Everything is going crazy. <laughs> I, I feel like that should be your, uh, your pre-roll. That's the code <laughs> open right there. <laughs> Sometimes you just know. Yeah. <laughs> um, the woman who had phoned in uh, tried to testify at this hearing and describe the Millers as people who would do anything to help themselves. And uh, despite her trying to explain her point of view, the DA and the judge just belittled her and ignored her. And they called her nosy, which after our discussion of how your first impression is that she seemed like kind of a busybody, to hear that that was also the immediate impression and only impression that the DA had is disheartening. Randall is denied a retrial and uh, appeals his conviction. His appeal lawyer uh, is in, appears in the interview and recalls that Randall never explicitly said that he didn't do it. But as an appeals lawyer, that was irrelevant to him. He was there to help him with the appeal. I said appeal a lot in that sentence. Yeah. Well, but, but yeah. I mean, but he's very clear. Like, he comes in and it's like, I don't care. The point is that the trial mm -hmm. was wrong. Exactly. Um, the state court votes 9-0 against them, which he found unfair. Uh, he and his family were getting ice cream when the judge and his family walked into the parlor and the judge commented that he saw where the court gave him an A in the Adams case. So apparently everyone in the legal system is violently aware that this is a miscarriage of justice, but also only seems to really care about getting that box checked, you know, getting yeah. that conviction. The judge in his interview explains that though their highest state appellate court affirmed the case, uh, this decision was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court eight to one, uh, and God, you know he kind of got shit right. Oh man, it's been so long. <laughs> Again, Another this movie hits this so movie different now. <laughs> yeah, um, the judge also 
kind of tries to cover his ass a little bit here. And he's like, well, you know, the thing with the pellet course isn't that they're saying that I was wrong. They're just saying that they disagree with me, which is an important difference. Because, like, the state agreed with me entirely, but the Supreme Court didn't. So, like, I wasn't wrong. They just disagreed with me. Yeah. Is this a spot where he, like, counts out the number of of justices that like agree versus disagree and he's like i still win in terms of like the total number it was like 10 to 8 or something like that and it's just like yeah what the fuck are you talking about man (laughs) that's not how the justice system works this this is not a score (laughs) he's trying to get a good grade in being a judge and that's not really a thing that is normal to want or okay to aim for the day after the reversal was announced the da vowed a retrial of randall um, he's like, I got no room for a cop killer getting off with less than the death penalty. But despite this, uh, requested that the governor commute the death penalty to life in prison. And that, uh, commutation eliminated the possibility of a retrial. So instead, Randall was, uh, taken off of death row and his sentence was changed to life in prison. Yeah. When I, so I, suggested this movie and i was like okay cool and i'm reading the wikipedia article before i rewatched the movie mm-hmm. and i'm like okay you got commuted to a, a life sentence that's better uh and then when you find out that it's actually just so that they don't have to like deal with it anymore and it's just like we can bury the, it this way it's mm-hmm. where you're like oh it's still a miscarriage of justice i mean it was always a miscarriage of justice yeah i know we said we weren't going to really come down on it but like also it, yeah <laughs> The movie comes down the, the on it. Like, there's a thesis in it. this film as well. Uh, and frankly, David Harris comes down on it at, later yeah. in the movie. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> for everyone. Um, again, this is a true story. So if you just read about a person's biography, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. that's that's how it went. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's just like, fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his appeals loyal lawyer also puts forward that he believes some of the reason for, as you mentioned, they're just trying to bury this. The reason that Randall was commuted to life in prison was because he might have been vindicated at a retrial. It might have really shown the proverbial ass of the Texas uh, state courts. Yeah, then his perfect record is gone. Yeah, can't have that, DA. The uh, lawyer explains that he felt that they prosecuted the wrong person and he can't understand why, because that seems to be a decision that was made by some policeman in Dallas or Vider. Uh, and that Al- and he mentions something interesting to him, which is that he stopped practicing criminal law uh, because of the just how badly the justice was miscarried and he just would rather do anything else. Uh, the appeals lawyer also says that he thinks Randall is one of Mulder's great victories because the prosecutor had reservations about his guilt. And so to have managed to get a guy that even you weren't convinced was guilty convicted is somehow uh, a great victory. Again, just really driving home the point of what mattered was the stats and the conviction, yeah. not the actual innocence or guilt. So fucked up. <laughs> like, the concern <laughs> is not justice. The concern is, like, it, it is victory. The concern is your reputation yeah. as a judge. It's like, anyone can convict a guilty man, but a great ju- like a great district attorney can convict an innocent man. Like, fuck. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> um, have, have we come back to Michael Randall yet, the, the third witness? He comes back, uh, and I forget when. He's coming back around soon, okay. I think. We go back to the Vider detective for a bit, and we're going to kind of learn a little bit more about David Harris uh, and his continued crime spree. Um, the detective got a call from a lady who had been hit over the head with a rolling pin, and her attacker was David Harris. 
uh, David had, quote unquote, voluntarily come to the station where the detective told him that there was, you know, no doubt that I know the truth. So you might as well just fess up now. And David admitted that he was drinking and smoking and, uh, you know, had attacked her. But he conveniently forgot to mention he was only wearing his underwear, which made the detective feel that this was a sexually motivated attack. David posted bail and went to Germany as a soldier enlisting in the army. And uh, twice the town would have a crime that matched David's MO and look him up in the military system and find out that he was in fact in prison when they looked him up. David, in his interview, explains that he was 16 and didn't really know how the courts and law worked. Uh, he says the in regards to the Randall testimony that the police sort of gave him some times and some details of when things happened and he correlated events from there. So the, the, for example, they say that the policeman was shot around like midnight and so... Oh, he's like, oh, well, I must have been here then at that, that time. Uh, giving even less credence to the... Uh, to his testimony. Yeah, also just want to point out that this is a a person who has fucked around a lot and has yet to really find out. Like, he hasn't Mm -hmm. had any situation like that, and that will change eventually, but, like, at at this point, like, it's kind of scary to think that he might have just been like, well, yeah, that guy's gotta be guilty, thinking that that there are no real consequences. Like, yeah, I'll go to jail. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't... He doesn't really get the consequence part of action and consequences. Yeah. Uh, we also get another great instance of the TV guide coming in to undercut what someone is saying. Uh, 9 p.m., Carol Burnett. He saw it, and they can't have let the, left the theater around midnight, because then how could he have been there to watch the 9 p.m. Carol Burnett ending? David explains how his testimony was gone over and over again and coached on, and how, thinking back on it, the prosecution was kind of deceiving the jury with how much they like really coached him and how much they made sure that he knew what to say. Um, and this is where we are reintroduced to the third witness, Michael Randall. He explains that uh, there was, that he had had another woman in the car yeah. with him. <laughs> and he didn't want to tell his wife about that, of course. And so he didn't tell that to the police. Uh, and he was trying to get her home when he had passed the scene of the crime. So the reason that their passenger window was down was so she could get some air. And after telling us that little fun little personal anecdote about himself, he uh, says that the DA would have put anything into someone's mouth to, you know, they would have fabricated this whole story if they could have just to get the conviction that they wanted. Uh, And also that he thinks the Millers were paid for lying, um, further discrediting the Millers. He has a great description here of the Hall of Justice that I really wanted to touch on. He's like, well, when you're out in the hall, the reason they call it the Hall of Justice is that's really where everything is decided. You know, that's where they come up with the testimonies. That's where they come up with the verdict. That's the real crux of it all. It's not the courtroom. It's not Lady Justice with their scales. It's the hall uh, outside. Right, because they don't want Lady Justice to see it, I think is the mm-hmm. point. Like, it's, it's, She's blind <laughs> to the actual dealings. Yeah. Uh, David explains that he had charges pending in Orange County, and the DA told him not to worry about those charges so long as he played ball with them and testified in the Adams case, just once again escaping consequences for his actions. And we then learned that the witnesses had picked uh, Randall from a lineup. Miss Miller had looked at the lineup and had not actually picked out Randall, but David, of course, immediately picked out Randall from a lineup, no problem. So it seems that even though there was some back and forth on who knew the actual person in the vehicle they went with david um and they decided that that was enough to identify randall and we go back to the recreation once again gunfire cop dead drive away we've seen this a couple times by now (laughs) 
David describes the various movements he he went through. You know, he's like, oh, I used to just take off all the time. I was a kid. I wasn't thinking about where I was going to stay, where I was going to eat, none of that. I never had to take care of myself before. He describes an incident where he was driving and there was ice on the road and a car behind him didn't see him coming and uh, tried to pass him and ended up going off the side of the road and how he just kept driving. Again, he doesn't seem to show any remorse for anything that happens either caused by him or around him. The detective from Vider gets a call one morning. They'd arrested David Harris, who had asked for him, uh, and he had been shot. He had initially claimed to have been at a bar in Houston when a girl's boyfriend had shot at him, but they knew he was lying and uh, tell him to tell the truth. So David admits that he had killed someone. He'd entered a home with a man in a woman's home and made the man stay in the bathroom while he grabbed the girl. And uh, as he was trying to leave with her, the man made an escape and he and David exchanged gunfire. And the detective had to explain to David that he was in the wrong and not the man who had died in their gunfight um, and whose home he had broken into and whose girlfriend he had abducted. So like you said earlier, David seems to have no concept of consequence, of remorse. Uh, He's not really understanding that there are consequences for his actions. But he's so friendly. But he's so... This uh, cop, uh, Sam Kittrell, is just like BFFs with David. Um, Every way that he talks about them is like fond. They have a little anecdote that he shares about how when they were retrieving the pistol, David was handcuffed and like making jokes to passing drivers and like, oh, ho, ho, how charming this kid was. You know, he just was a little misguided and he only murdered one man. Is is that like, it's just interesting because I was thinking like Kittrell actually like of all the cops generally is like less file like he's got a personal relationship with him i don't know mm-hmm. this, this is sort of the weird part about perceptions of, of it all like Ketrel is set up right. as being like the one good cop in in, in vidor which is like well that's a statement um yeah <laughs> and and like he does try to be like cut the bull or he keeps like saying like i, I keep trying to tell him to cut the bullshit tell the actual truth mm-hmm. and so forth but like and, and like pinning it on him ver- versus like uh what's like Gus Rose, like one of the, it was one of the Dallas ones who's just like I had to stay friendly with him because he's so nice. I like I don't know. It the the problem is that David is like he's got that kind of smug charm to him, even in the interviews that we see with him, where he's mm-hmm. like smiling and being like, yeah, I guess it was just that he's like this folksy kind of thing going for him. Like the, you yes. know, he's the hometown boy from Vidor. He's the he's the this is the local boy yeah. gets up to shenanigans. It has a very like yeah. Local cop, local teen, sort of, well, as long as it's all in our own little town. Right. It's, you know, you're not hurting anyone that we care about, but that uh, doesn't excuse it. Right, but it, yeah. It's, it's not good. It's not good. No. <laughs> Randall, in his interview, is talking about how David scares him and that he is like, yeah, David had like seven crimes coming down on him and they let him go anyway just because he testified against me. We get a few more shots of the city of Dallas, and Randall quotes his mom, who is quite the poet. Uh, if there was ever a hell on earth, it was Dallas County. Uh, Kittrell explains that he can sometimes sort of like sense that someone doesn't like him because he's a cop and he has these kind of senses, I guess. I guess being a cop gives you like a sixth sense for whether or not people like you or not. Um, and he's like, 
when I was talking to David, you know, you never feel any hostile feelings coming from him. He, I know he's got a bad side to him, but I've personally never seen him be violent or volatile. So, uh, you know, he must be a good kid. And we see a bunch of David's like baby photos and ch- photos from childhood. And we learn that uh, he, he's got this younger brother who drowned when uh, the brother was four and David was three because his dad was supposed to be watching them while they were playing in the pool and the brother wandered up away and, and drowned in a neighbor's Yeah, like, yeah. O- older brother's the one that drowned, but he has a younger yeah. brother after that. But but yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like also, David has some, a sob story to him, but like, mm-hmm. uh, like hurt people hurt people, basically. Yeah. <laughs> It was, you know, it, it, all this serves to do is to, for David to explain that he's like, oh, well, I didn't get a lot of attention from acceptance from my dad. So I want, I think that's probably why I turned to crime to, to act out, but I just ended up hurting myself, um, which I think for the most part, Earl Morris does a really good job of selecting portions of interviews to like keep the focus on the story. I think this was the one portion where I was like, I don't know if we really need to for like explain why david does what he does in order to get to the final point i mean like hurt people hurt people is sort of an idea but that ha- one that hasn't really been expressed too much throughout I, I think that's just me like contextualizing like what is going on with this guy yeah. but like I'm, i the my take on why they they cut into like a little bit of background on david is sort of to make him less cartoonish like there are moments where we mm. need to humanize everyone and remind them that these are real people um, because up until this point, again, this is just a sociopath who just is robbing, raping, murdering people like left and right. And is probably the person who did it at this point in the movie. But like, we don't have like anything that's like definitive yet. <laughs> like, that's really like pushed that line there. Um, so like, it is good to remind the audience that there are multiple sides to every story. And some of that is the, like the stuff, like the fact that we have a sob story for this guy, like I think it is helpful there. It's the same way that like us spending some time, like establishing like what is good and what is bad about some of the cops. And, and, and like, you, you know, like, like the female cop mm-hmm. who like had those issues, but also like was, you know, going up against a lot of, of pushback just because she was like one of the first female cops in, in, you know, in Dallas County, like, so that there are these like stories going on that are like other factors in it because it's not fiction. Yeah. You know, I think that's, I never really considered it from that way, but I think that's a really interesting perspective and like idea on why to include that. Cause I think, I think you're right. I think that does actually do the important work of humanizing David to the point where, not that you question whether or not he is guilty, because undeniably there is a lot of crimes that he has committed, but makes him less, like you said, cartoonish. Yeah. <laughs> that's really, that's really Especially because we have more to go with David. So, like, yeah. you know, if we just kept on hammering really just... it, like, it's... Like, again, we... If you are trying to do a documentary, there has to be some presentation, even if you're being, mm-hmm. even if you're coming down on a viewpoint, but there has to be some presentation that, that stories have facets, uh, and that it is the real world. And again, one of the the big theses of this is that there are multiple perspectives of things and that it can be, that you can have this Rashomon style, like breakdown of like what actually occurred. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and speaking of more of David, we've really only got one excuse me, sequence left in the film. We 
gets some text um, on December 5th, 1986. David Harris was interviewed for the last on the one last time. And we go to a tape recorder uh, and we hear this interview, including Errol Morris asking questions. Errol asks, would you say that Adams is a pretty unlucky fellow? And David responds, yes. You know, did he have bad luck? Sure. It could have been from any number of things. Uh, you know, it's like I said, uh, sometimes a guy has no place to go, no place to stay. And um, Errol kind of presses on this. Does he mean that if David had stayed at the motel that night, that this would never have happened? And David says that there's a good possibility because, you know, have you ever heard of the proverbial scapegoat? There's probably thousands of innocent people convicted and no one knows why. Errol asks if Randall is innocent and David responds that he's sure he is. How can he be sure? Um, because he's the one that knows. Errol asks if David is surprised that the police blamed him. Uh, that blamed Randall, but David states that it wasn't the police that blamed him, David did, and he was just a scared 16-year-old kid who wanted to get out of it if he could. David seems still kind of incredulous that they believed him at all. And the one quote that like really sticks with you is uh, from David. If you could say why there's a reason Randall was in jail, it's because he didn't have no place for somebody to stay that helped him that night. And on this, we fade to black, get one last look at those close-up police lights uh, and some textual info uh, about the case itself. Randall Adams is serving a life sentence in Eastham Unit, Lovelady, Texas. David Harris is on death row, Ellis Unit, Huntsville, Texas, for the murder in the 1985, uh, in, in a 1985 of Mark Walter Mays. And it's been over 11 years since the murder of Dallas police officer Robert Wood. And so ends the thin blue line. I, you know, we got to talk about that last yeah. interview. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, so first thing, it's it the, the, the post bit being like, okay, so this is why David Harris has been in jail this whole time. Because, like, they actually mm -hmm. hadn't established that. It's like, oh, more murder. Um, more murder, yeah. But, but yeah, I was, uh, was going to say the, like, what are your thoughts on that sequence? So it's, it's an audio recording and they do a lot of, like, dramatic pans of this like tape recorder that look a mm -hmm. little bit too much like the talk boy from home alone to lost <laughs> in new york um but the reason why that happened is because the film equipment broke down and so all they could do was get an audio recording going for it um mm -hmm. and so and certainly the the shots are just like all constructed ones afterwards just to have some kind of drama to what they're showing but like i find and speaking also as a like adhd person like having those moments <laughs> where it's just like oh we're not act i'm not looking at his face i'm not looking at all these other mm -hmm. details in this last scene we are just focusing on the words we're just hearing what he has to say and just like really trying to pick that part apart and not look at all the other like ticks and so forth which some people might think are like oh additional body language and information but i think it also is obfuscating with a person who has gotten by on his charm this is the moment where we're just yeah. listening to what he has to say and where it really comes across of this is what happened this is how it is and i, I think it's very effective and it's accidentally so yeah i completely agree i think david throughout his interviews has this sort of like easy smile loose kind of posture he's very open and it's hard to look past that and focus on what he's saying but because of the equipment failure um and you know maybe the cassette tape panning is a little goofy at points but for the most part it's just static enough that you can 
focus on what's being said and what's being said is so fascinating and chilling that uh i think to have done any more to take away from the words would have just been unnecessarily distracting um i technical problems led to a iconic and brilliant ending sequence in some ways yeah it's it it's so surprising that it works so well because you, you get to that point and he confesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He essentially, you know, in saying that the reason he's in jail is because he didn't let David just crash for the night. I, in my, you know, in my mind, it's so easy to see how the documentary now parody of the episode went to, yeah, no, I killed him from this <laughs> right. line. But <laughs> as chilling as the rest of the film is... I think this is the part where it almost comes to like a perfect crystallized like moment of real fear of like, oh yeah, this this guy, no matter how much he's charmed all of these other people, did something horrible and got away with yeah. it. I mean, he's in prison for something else, but at the end of the day, like he can walk up to the line of saying, yeah, I did it and still got away yeah, with it. He can walk up to that thin blue The thin line. blue line. <laughs> It, yeah, I mean, th- this is where it gets so wild because it's, mm-hmm. it, be- and also I think this is why it's helpful to have that chunk right before this of actually like examining uh, mm-hmm. David in terms of like, well, there is more to him than just this sociopathic monster, um, or at least that there's right. a reason for, there's an origin story for this, um, <laughs> as opposed to introducing it earlier. Like, why why mm-hmm. do we even deal with this all? Because here's the spot where it is so chilling at the end that it would almost be too pat if you didn't have like a little bit more, if you didn't see some, like if you didn't see a little bit more to him. And then the other side of it is like, this is the last interview because it's right before he gets executed. Um, And that's like pretty chilling in its own way. And it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. now stripped of everything else, there's that. But why is Randall Adams there? Because the, like, it's it's not about justice it's about vengeance and not even vengeance like it's not that they want someone to punish it's that they need to show someone to punish they have to lynch mm-hmm. someone in the scenario and like i like yeah. i know i'm using like racially charged terms in this all and like in this weird movie where like in in the town with the Ku Klux Klan with, like where there's like all these like people of color who are witnesses who are perjuring themselves to you know indict mm-hmm. this white man like there, there's all this like complex stuff going on with that you know it, it's bucking all the trends because it's not how you would write this movie it's like that's no. the thing that's really like kind of upsetting about it that it's such this gross miscarriage of justice um in in all regards um and <laughs> it, it it's it, it's not playing to to tropes that way it's just mm-hmm. here's a bloodlust that is holding together a community kind of through fear because it's, it, it's the same part as like, well, the town of Vidor is held together by the Ku Klux Klan. Like that, like that, that's the only thing keeping this community together at this point. Like it, it it's so perverse, but also like, Hey, the world see this. <laughs> like think about that when you like, look at all this like copaganda that's out there. Yeah. Like, by decree <laughs> like like the, 
for a long time, movies weren't allowed to show police officers in any sort of negative light. Uh, comic books, mm-hmm. same deal. Like, there's all this media, like, they were just not flat out not allowed to have a bad cop. Exactly. I do want to ask, because you mentioned at the top of the show, like, this is, you know, the, not this, the, this is not your first time watching this movie. I have completely lost the ability to speak English, which is great for an audio-only medium. Uh, <laughs> it's not your first time watching this film. Um, do you think, uh, and you sort of alluded to this, but like, how has your perspective changed from when you first saw it to now? Like, how much do you think the current context of like policing in the, the country has affected your viewing of it? And how much has been your own personal perspectives? Uh, you know, perspectives change and can be complicated when viewed from different lenses and change things. How has that affected how you view this film? What's wild is that my takeaway has really changed for this movie. And I'm not, you know, it's weird because again, like I saw this movie in like 2004 or five, some, somewhere in that range. Um, and right. I, I was a junior in college and I re- remember this movie being very eye opening in terms of that perspective element of it. Like the, like I said, the Rashomon kind of component of it and how there can be outside incentivizing factors in sort of like deciding on what is the truth or what is the history of an event as opposed mm-hmm. to like really looking for justice or, or even really really like understanding and appreciating the fact that like the the theoretical bedrock of our society is the innocent until proven guilty part that like you actually have to have a good case it's not just like you have to have a guilty party um and i i really distinctly remember the the fact that all these people were seeing things and piecing things together differently and some of it's coaching and some of like but but i like i i didn't remember how malicious it was yeah and and that's the crazy part and like again like like from a background standpoint like like i grew up in like conservative catholic family like my grandfather was a Republican congressman. Uh, I went to Georgetown Prep, which is where Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh went to school. My dad also went there and was in high school, or was not in the same class, but was at the same high school with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Like there, like there's like a weird, like I, you know, like I've got so many people who used to be friends with me that are like now like lobbyists on Capitol Hill, and it's like this is really kind of gross now that I think about it, but like this was a moment where I was like starting to w- like wake up to a lot of the like, Oh yeah. This like s- rigid structure that we've been sold is like the actual, that is the thin blue line. Like the, the, the thing that's holding mm-hmm. everything together is, is so prone to human error. And now almost 20 years later, really coming to understand way more. It's not just prone to human error, but it's, prone to human corruption it's it's prone to all these elements that that really shape it and it's prone to the history of policing in this country and and in general um and it's gotten so much worse like that's the other part of this like when this movie came out it's like well yeah that's that's pretty fucked up that these cops did it that way but you know like like she was the first female cop in the (laughs) like you know like there's like these moments of like kind of progressiveness and like and, and not all of them are terrible like even the ones who like well up you're like well but i understand why he has this hero worship for cops and like all the stuff and mm-hmm. like i said like like sam kittrell the the cop from from Vitor, who's like the one good one like that's that's pretty fucked up <laughs> but like looking at it now where you're like oh it's so much more insidious it's so much more intentional and it's so much more like myth like self mythologizing um mm-hmm. and combine that then with the fact that this expression has become this like toxic thing that has has gotten everywhere because like 
guess what? Like, yeah, you see a lot of like just like random blue stripe stuff, but most often it's like a skull with a, a stripe on it or like an American flag mm-hmm. with a, a stripe on it. And like that's getting really kind of like creepy, even in a like completely devoid of context. The fact that just everyone's just like showing off like, yeah, let's just put fucking skulls or like a, a nig, like a, just a black and white American flag but with one blue line going across it. Like it that would be creepy completely devoid of the context of the problems of policing in this country and like this adoration for policing in this country and the fact that it has come to light and we become so much more aware of it now and you look back at this thing from 1988 and they're like yeah remember when you were four years old and we were trying to tell the same story then and like people like Mm -hmm. were like it's not a documentary it's too politicized and like when I, i was saying like things have like come to sort of emulate the style America's most wanted emulated the style. Like there's all all these things that have like taken this and like perverted it. And like again, the expression the thin blue line becoming this perverse thing is like just this need to have this mythology of like law and order is the only thing holding society together and that if it, it is your duty to worship it and advocate for it and that like it needs to be fed all the adulation that it is deserving because what else would we have? And the truth is what else would we have is people living their lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is a quagmire from which there is, you could endlessly plunge the depths of this proverbial swamp. Um, Just from a, you know, filmistic perspective from a, you know, talking about this as a work of documentary filmmaking, as we mentioned, like, uses a lot of recreations which were very new for the time in documentary was part of the reason it was <laughs> well, snubbed or, at the or, Oscars. Or, or su- supposedly new for the time. We also need to be supposedly clear about that new. one. If you go back to Nanook <laughs> of the North, come on. Like, <laughs> uh, supposedly yeah, but, new. But being like, in, these, in the eyes of the Academy. We are admitting that these are reenactments, right? That <laughs> was right. the new part. Um, you know, there's a lot of incredibly effective techniques that go into this. Uh, the style is very like reminiscent of noir filmmaking, which only serves to sort of heighten the the themes of in policing. It's an incredible work to look at if you are particularly interested in the way that you can construct a story and particularly a non-linear one. Like you you've referred to this as like a Rashomon, you know, the, the story of many perspectives being told by piecing together all those perspectives, and it's. An incredible work of editing to have cut together these interviews in a way that you do get that sort of flow that pushes you through it, um, even as you sort of learn a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more about the events that actually occurred. But again, like you said, this is so tied into the world that we currently live in, the the world of 1988 and the state of policing now, um, that it, it is incredible that it is uh, incredible and disheartening that it is so resonant yeah yeah that's the thin blue line <laughs> yeah, i mean that's a 40 year old movie but it there, there's such a good flow to it like i, I mean in terms mm-hmm. of the actual like filmmaking components to it like it does a really good job of capturing the interview ease in both good and bad lights where you don't really mm-hmm. spend too much time really worrying about frankly morris's perspective on them like while there are and like again this is the reasons why you show the the, the sob story for for david like it's so that you can have mm-hmm. like that you aren't lost in trying to 
well, at least I was not lost in trying to be like, <laughs> he's he's got an axe to grind and like, we can't trust anything that this guy said. Right. I, saying that, I'm like, honestly, probably a lot of people had that <laughs> exact reaction. In fact, that's probably why it was snubbed at the Oscars because of all those kind of things. But at the on, on the other hand, like it was very effective. And at least for, for one case Aiken, it was one of the, the revolutionary pieces in terms of what the power of a documentary was and also what mm-hmm. what the subject that being America and particularly how America's relationship with law enforcement what it was and why why we need to look at it more closely than just what the statement is you know like it, a, yeah. a common refrain in discussing the the current landscape of policing is that the media particularly you know, the mainstream media, but like particularly like reporters often will take like, here's the police statement at, at its word. And like, that is way too mm-hmm. common. And like, if you look at this particular case, like right off the bat, like the, one of the earliest scenes is like, yeah, no, he has a confession. We got it. Exactly. And you can't take that right. at its word because as this film proves, that's not a confession, just a run of the mill statement. It's a fascinating work to look at from a number of angles. Um, if you are at all interested in documentary, this is one of... The most effectively constructed, uh, I, I would not hesitate to say of all time, it's definitely one of the most uh, impacting, but we are coming up on time here for the podcast. So, we've gone I feel so like long, could... I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is not the longest episode this podcast has ever had, you are so okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot to cover here, we had a lot of perspectives to examine. Uh, if people would like to examine a different perspective from you about different topics and whatnot, uh, where can they hear more from you? Uh, yeah, so I am the host of two podcasts that are currently running, as you pointed out at the top. Uh, Another Pass is a movie analysis podcast where we look at movies that we find fascinating but flawed and discuss how we could have fixed them at the time. And then every five episodes, we look at a movie that had a crap ton of problems go on with the production. And we discuss, isn't it amazing that they actually got through it and made a good movie? Uh, So like, for example, you were on to talk about Speed Racer because, you know, best movie your brand (laughs) (laughs) i'm nothing i'm not dedicated to (laughs) i mean we kind of led we're like hey your brand speed racer do you want to come on and talk about speed racer Uh, that's all i've ever wanted i have hoped to develop the reputation people anyone who wants to have someone on a podcast about the movie speed racer specifically (laughs) hit me up But, but that was one where we knew going into it where regardless of the quality of the movie and i think we all pretty much agreed that the movie was mm-hmm. pretty good it was critically panned and, and a box office bomb so we had to have like a real conversation just on in terms of like mm-hmm. what the reception of the movie was and like how that could have been played with in terms of production so those are oftentimes a kind of conversation so it's not just like here's a bad movie how would we fix it and the, there are great mo- <laughs> there are great shows that do that but like we specifically wanted to be like all right realistically at the time of production what's going on like what kind of drove the factors here what could have been done to sort of like avert those things or or were they doomed um and that's sometimes is the the consensus and other times we'll pull out like a crazy pitch and it'll be like look at look at this amazing thing that definitely could have been done because it's based (laughs) on the first draft um so that's one and then uh the other show i host is men of steel which is a superman and superman adjacent uh appreciation show so we talk about i mean superman but also uh, the 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 power fantasy of superman and like why is that like an inspiring thing why is that an interesting story that we keep talking about so we'll talk about like here's here's a really cool comic run with the character or we'll talk about like invincible or when you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when Wonder Woman 84 came out and kept having its date pushed back, we kept having more and more episodes of Wonder Woman because we'd already like locked in and being like, yeah, we're doing this because Wonder Woman 84 is about to come out. Oh, it's been pushed back three months. Guess we're doing three months of Wonder Woman. 
Um, and sometimes we'll do like even weirder work. So like uh, a recent episode we we recorded, which may or may not be out by the time that this episode drops, uh, was on a short story about a Superman type character who just hmm. can't ha- help but have collateral damage because superpowers in the real world are, are kind of fucked up and like sort of exploring that and like what are, you know what is the the fantasy versus where the fantasy meets reality and like what can we take it from mm-hmm. it so the point is all the shows that i'm working on are usually coming from the perspective of positivity like there's a lot of negativity on the internet and we don't want to like let that fester and like live on it i know i've said like fuck the man a lot <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> but i genuinely believe that the world can be a good place and i like to think about like ways that Hell it could yeah. be better um so th- those are the podcast type of thing if you like my voice uh, also if you like my voice but like <laughs> Don't want to see my face, but want to see an animated version of my face. Uh, <laughs> uh, I also do the YouTube videos for the Certain POV Podcast Network. Uh, and w- one of the things that we do, in addition to clips of our shows using animated avatars for everyone, is I do a series called Superman Analogs, where I talk about characters who were inspired by mm. Superman and give like a three to five minute sort of like, here's what I think is important about that character. And it might be like, here's their story, <laughs> uh, or it might be like why that why this thing came out or what was interesting about it at the time or just the things that like really stood out in terms of like looking back on a thing um and so that's been going for a while now i think we're at 130 some videos at this point for that one so there's there's some good content out there to check out it's been a lot of fun just like gushing about superman stuff i'm a nerd I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> like, I need to make that very clear. I know. I was like, let's talk about the hard <laughs> documentary about police brutality, um, but or, or like corruption in law enforcement. But honestly, if I if I could have my way, I would just be like, man, it's really cool talking about like the Avengers, uh, <laughs> uh, and that that is what I would choose to do most of my days if I wasn't so worried that the world uh, could slip into anarchy. If only the thin blue line. Um, so that, that's the general through line of my stuff, that there's cool stuff out there that in the world is potentially a great place, uh, but it takes some work to get there. <laughs> we love an optimistic view. Definitely check out the rest yeah. of Case Stuff, the podcast, the animations, all that will be linked in the show notes below. Thank you so, so much for coming back on yeah, the show. Yeah. This has been, I know it was a heavy topic, but I had a yeah, great time. Much heavier than the Muppets. <laughs> If you would like to hear us talk about The Muppets, check out The Muppet Show episode of this podcast. (laughs) Two sides of the same coin. We're getting all our film analysis in. Um, But thank you so, so much for joining me. Uh, I usually do a joke at the end of these, but I don't know if that's appropriate for this one. So I'm just going to take us on out of here. You can go watch and listen to The Muppets episode also. And uh, we'll catch you next time on this on Movie (laughs) Strong. Hi, Sophia here. Just wanted to add a little extra info before jumping into the usual post-roll. We didn't get a chance to mention it in episode, but following the release of this film, Randall Adams was eventually released and would go on to become an advocate against the death penalty until he himself passed away in 2010. Perhaps a bit of bittersweet news, but a testament to the skill with which the Thin Blue Line was constructed. Okay, the usual stuff. Uh, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on October 23rd with another thrilling installment. But if you have any questions, comments, or concerns in the meantime, feel free to email the show at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron for even more exclusive benefits. I'd like to give a special thank you to the patrons who joined us in September. So shout out to uh, Leonard Zagatz and Madeline Deitch. 
thanks to you guys and everyone over on Patreon uh, for supporting the show, keeping it running, and keeping Ziggy, who was the reason this episode came out a little later, because she had a little scratch on her head. She's fine, but I had to chase her around with a wet, 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 wet washcloth. Um, and the good cat food. So, Ziggy, say thank you, and uh, thank you to all the patrons and everyone who's been listening to Movie Struck.